Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, um, we are now finally at a place to where our uh, cover songs, we're actually able to see how they've been doing. Yeah. And yeah. I have to say, it's been a pretty good success so far. Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, I expected to have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, but it's nice to see so, that um, we're getting... are actually yeah. liking the stuff, so... Uh, keep watching those because it makes me keep wanting to actually do them. Yeah, edit and, them, <laughs> and we've and we've got a lot of uh, songs in the works already that are just waiting to be finished. Right. So um, we're going to be releasing uh, those videos every time that an episode comes out. So right. you know, if you see that there's a new episode, then just go over to the YouTube channel and you'll see it there as well. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll um, start doing two pretty yeah. soon for our Patreon users. Yes, we uh, right now our patron. If you've looked at our page, there's still nothing on it yet, but we are working hard because we just we gotta reformat a lot of things and kind of do a lot of logistic, busy work stuff in order to get things ready for Patreon. Right. So um, I don't think anyone has officially started donating yet, which I'm glad about because then I don't want them to yeah, be like, yeah. well, I just pledged for a month and there's nothing yeah. on here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say in the next week or so, we're going to finally start getting stuff on there. And then from that point, we're going to start pushing Patreon pretty hard. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to hold off on that for just a minute until we actually have stuff to say, look, <laughs> there's already stuff on here rather than telling you guys, oh, just another week. yeah. Uh, we gotta like completely reformat our episodes in order to have them ready for early uh, mm -hmm. listening, and then of course it's gonna be a couple weeks before we have the bonus cover songs on there. So mm -hmm. we'll let you guys know when that's ready. Yep. Um, I would say look to our Instagram page and our Facebook page mm -hmm. for news on that, mm -hmm. and that's a good segue into saying check us out on our social media pages. Yeah. Um, we've actually been getting some some cool interaction on our posts been having people get in on some of the conversations that's good and um they must mostly be on facebook <clears throat> no i mean on our, our we've ha been having good interaction with our stories yes on our on our instagram stories our, yeah. our stories where i'm where i'm asking questions and you know we're getting some good uh use out of that and we're starting to get our follow count up to a good number so we're constantly having more people finding us and the ultimate thing is just that they are directed over to the episodes mm -hmm. it's kind of the whole point mm -hmm. and um the episodes recently have been doing very well black sabbath actually broke pink floyd volume two's record wow for that being... was the one that blew up the records before it. yep so black sabbath is now our biggest video um food... i'm not surprised <laughs> food fighters is is what's currently out at the time of this recording and um that one's probably not going to break the record, but it's going to get close. Yeah. It's already at about the 200 mark. Wow. But Black Sabbath's, already, crazy. Black Sabbath's already past 300. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised about Black Sabbath. They're just, they're a legendary mm -hmm. band. Well, you'd be surprised what legendary bands don't uh, get as many listens. Well, be, well, it's it's a legendary band that people just don't know a lot about. That's true. You know, it's like... As a guitarist, it's like you're always supposed to worship Tony Iommi and his riffage, but I, you never I, know anything about their history. I heard someone, like, we were we heard a, an Ozzy Osbourne song on the radio, and I was trying to figure out which one it was. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, this sounds like one of his newer songs. And he was just like, yeah, I think he wrote this before he was in Black Sabbath. 
And I was like, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. What? Whoa, what did whoa, you just say? Whoa, whoa. <laughs> he was in Black Sabbath first. Wow. So. Wow. Um, but yeah, so Black Sabbath <laughs> has been a very popular episode, and mm-hmm. it's just the metal episodes continue to just be really big draws for us, which is great. And I'm hoping that'll translate to this episode. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so whatever platform you guys are listening on, keep on listening to our episodes and, uh, make sure you hit the subscribe button and leave us a comment. Let us know what bands I I have been checking Mm -hmm. to see if we've been getting any more requests, Mm -hmm. but I haven't checked today. So let's, let's see if we have any new, uh, requests in our comment feed and it doesn't look like so so a, a good benefit to commenting is that we will read your comments live on the show yeah <laughs> so let us know which ones we're missing what are what are the the artists that are criminally missing from our list of episodes Jimi hendrix has been mentioned twice yeah and you still haven't put it in the running at least that i know of that you know that of. i know of I, I'm very strategic, like, I don't like to do a bunch of, like, big legendary bands all in a row. Mm-hmm. I like to space them out, you know. If we do all the big bands right up front, then it's kind of like we're left with, like, all the lesser bands mm-hmm. later. So I just, you know. There's there's a complex formula that goes in my head of making sure I'm spacing out genres and decades and styles and... All that to try and make everything as diverse as possible. Mm-hmm. So, um, but Jimi Hendrix is definitely on the brain. It will, it will arrive. There's, I don't have a hatred of Hendrix. That is, it's just <laughs> finding the right week for it. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, a lot, all the bands that I've been suggested so far are bands that I do want to do at some point. It's just going to be finding the perfect time to do it. Um, but yeah, let us know in the comments what you would like us to cover next. And, um, yeah, on our YouTube page, make sure you hit the subscribe button on that as well. Like the video, leave us comments. We had one guy comment that on our next video, we should talk about our greatest life achievement. (laughs) And I don't know what that means. I don't don't know what that means, but I mean, you know. But I mean, we can talk about it on here, but it's not going to be on a YouTube video unless Uh. that video of our episode makes it onto YouTube. Maybe. So whoever Maybe. requested that, pretty strange, but sure, okay. <laughs> Eventually. In in your short nineteen years of life. What's my greatest life? What's your greatest life? I could life I could answer I could give some pretty good candidates, but uh, we'd we'd waste a lot of time. We have a big episode. Yeah. Today. So Oh uh, well I I feel like taking my time on this episode because we're just gonna make you guys listen to us talk for a long yeah, time. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. We don't have to hurry. No, we don't. Okay. Um, let me make sure I'm not forgetting anything else to plug. Uh, I mean, if you want to go ahead and become a patron, you can head on over there and subscribe. We've got a $3 tier and $5 tier. Um, don't be dissuaded by the lack of material. Material is coming, and once it starts coming, it's going to start coming in pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go ahead and just be a rabid supporter, feel free to do so. The... Um, the link is in the description of the episode, which I got to go back and put those in all of the episode descriptions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, let's go ahead and talk about 
some uh, some music news. Okay, you first. So this this <laughs> one has got me really excited. Okay. So biopics are all the rage, especially music ones. Mm-hmm. And we are finally getting a great heavy metal biopic. And it's about Lemmy from Motorhead. Biopic? Yeah, so they're going to make a movie about his life. Wait, really? Yes. Oh my god! They haven't announced who's going to be playing him. That's okay, but that's okay. That's okay. I mean, the fact that we're going to get a like Hollywood biopic about a heavy metal icon, I think yeah. is long overdue. And if you're going to pick anyone to do one on... Lemmy. <laughs> Lemmy. I mean, you can barely find better. <laughs> Like, the only other yeah. people I could think of that could be in that color would be, like, Ozzy or... I'm, I'm looking forward to the scene where they depict Lars Ulrich stalking him. <laughs> and then throwing up all over his hotel room. <laughs> nah. And him roading for Hendrix. Uh, yeah, yeah. And his time with Hawkwind. Like, this... He's got a really, really cool story. Yeah. And he's already got a great documentary out about him. Mm-hmm. Um, which I need to go watch again because it's been a while since I've seen it. That was the documentary that turned me into a Lemmy fan. And finally kind of made me go, okay, I understand Motorhead, why yeah. you're awesome now. Yeah. So, um, I don't know when it's going to come out. Obviously, we don't know any details about who's in it, who's making it. But, I mean, we're going to make a movie about Lemmy, and I you can't really get uh, more excited about anything else than that. So, so that's my news. Okay. So you were you were teasing yeah. me earlier okay. today about yeah. something. So we talked a couple episodes about uh, back. I think it was uh, Elvis or something. Where you were talking about a, a AI wrote a song like an ACDC yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. They called wrote Great Balls. And they wrote a Metallica song. And that that's a that's a very that's that's old AI tech just applied in a new way. A, a very new thing that I just recently discovered, and and I think it's actually been going on for a few years. Is they're actually able to get artificial intelligence to write the music oh and so they applied it to a lot of different songs there was uh it'll it'll listen to the first minute of a song and then mm-hmm. try to guess what the rest is going to be hmm. um there are like five different versions that it wrote of never going to give you up and they all sound great and it has different <laughs> harmonies in there that were never even in the song huh. so so okay this was not going the direction i yeah, thought yeah no a- ai is just exploding into the music scene it's not going to replace the artist, I mean, it can't, oh, no. it can't come up with meaningful lyrics, obviously. Mm. <laughs> but um, yeah, they applied it to a lot of different artists. Um, not the one that we're going to talk about today, probably because it's too complex. But a notable one was for him. What? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. For him, they they played a for him song for the jukebox AI. Oh. I've got to look this up. By the way, for those of you that don't know, uh, For Him was the band that my dad was in. Yeah, so... As, as the lead singer, or one of the lead singers. And, um... I want to know if he knows about this. <laughs> I'd be really curious to hear yeah, what that there's, sounds there's like. Yeah, there's like 20 different Eagles songs and a bunch of Elvis and stuff, and a lot of artists we've done. But... Yeah. I've been... The one I've been seeing is that, um... They've written like two Metallica songs. Yeah, Deliverance Rides and yeah, and yeah, that one's... <laughs> And one that uh, I remember seeing the headlines, just like, this song is criminally missing a bunch of yeahs. <laughs> so it's yeah. not a real Metallica song. It could be like a pre-1991. I'd say pre-Justice, because there's some yeahs on Justice. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway. Yeah. 
I thought you'd find that interesting. That is interesting. I gotta look up this for him one. That's yeah. Is that. I need to know what it's robots... Spelled with, it's spelled with the number four, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I need to know what the robots did to my father. <laughs> yeah, if he's a robot slave or yeah. something. <laughs> the robots have taken over my father's body. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Let's go ahead and jump into this episode. Boy, do we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. So, who are we talking about in this one? We're talking about Dream Theater. Dream Theater. I noticed late in like last three or four episodes that... We kept name dropping Dream Theater. Yes. So it's probably a hint to their listeners that yeah. that's what's been on our brains yeah. lately. <laughs> well, it's hard for it not to be because it's so. It's the kind of music that you can't just listen to it. No. Mm-mm. You, you have to be. If you're, you're, you're going to listen and do something else, it has to be completely mindless. Uh huh. Because it demands your attention. Yes, and it so, does. Um, but anyway, let's talk about Dream Theater and let's talk about their formation because I know very little about their history. Ooh, they've uh, got a great what history. What I do know is they all came from the same university. Mm, three of them did. Three of them. Okay, there you the, go. The core, the founding three. The founding three, uh, Mike Portnoy, the drummer, mm-hmm. John Petrucci, the guitarist, mm-hmm. and Jordan Rudis, the keyboardist? No, or... John Myung, the bass player. Uh-huh, now, okay. Now, John and John mm-hmm. actually have been best friends since, like, middle school. So they cool. they predate Berkeley. That's it was cool. at Berkeley that they met. Mike well, I, thought was, I thought it was uh, Boston. No, they uh, they grew up in New York. Hmm. Okay. So they in Berkeley is where they that Dream Theater formed. Um. So yeah, John and John have known each other, and they bonded over their love of music. Mm-hmm. And both went to Berkeley together, met Mike Portnoy there, and dropped out after, like, their first year to start pursuing Dream Theater full-time. But at the time, it was called Majesty. Ooh, okay. Um, and they would have kept that name had uh, another band already taken legal action against them, saying that that was their name. Wow. And then Mike Portnoy's dad said, well, why don't you call it Dream Theater? Because that was the name of a movie theater in his hometown. It's kind of like uh, Black Sabbath. Yeah. Where they have to just change their name. Uh-huh. And it ends up being better. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if we called them Majesty now? Like, it just wouldn't be the same. Yeah. You know, it's got the, the logo with the crown on it. It's pretty weird. Yeah. Um, but they end up, their label ends up becoming Yitze Jam uh, Records, which is Majesty Backwards. Mm-hmm. So they still keep it around. And and the Majesty <laughs> is part of their logo with the M in there and also the DT, DTM. Mm-hmm. Combine that all together. You've got the Dream Theater logo. Um, so yeah, it's those three, and then I believe it was another childhood friend of either J- Petrucci's or Portnoy's. Mm-hmm. I got I can't remember which. Uh, Kevin Moore, who's their original keyboard player, okay. that plays on the first three records. Do we have any representation? Yes, we do. Okay, cool. um, Images and Words was their second record. Really? Mm-hmm. Wait, whoa. Yeah. Wow. So, so, okay. so Kevin Moore's yeah. the keyboard player during that era. So he plays on When Day and Dreamy Night, Images and Words, and Awake. And then um, then they go through a slew of singers throughout the early years. So they, they formed in like 85 or 86. Mm-hmm. Um, the first album came out in 89, which was When Day and Dreamy Night. That's when they had Charlie Dominici on vocals. Mm-hmm. They sacked him pretty quickly because he like is not a rock metal singer, but he was trying to be. Ooh. He's more of like a like a blues classic rock crooner, hmm. and um, and then that's when they found James Labrie, who's been with them ever since, and he made his debut on or debut on 
images and words. Oh, yeah. Boy, I mean, did he. I mean, I was talking dream theater with, with one of my metal buds, and, and before this episode, like, I wasn't that big of a dream theater guy, right? We can get talk about all that in the final thoughts, but um, he recommended the images and words album. Mm-hmm. And I had already heard "Pull Me Under," which is the first song, which is the the one Dream Theater song that just about everyone's heard. Did just about yeah, it was their only hit, right? And 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 I loved it, <clears throat> but I never thought to actually listen to the rest of the album. And and every song on that one is so different. It almost sounds yeah. like if Rush went more proggy from like their their late seventies period and just kept going. They've always been described, especially the, I would say the early is a cross between Rush and Iron Maiden. And then you add more heavier influences as they got older. But those, those nineties albums are definitely have a lot more of the classic prog sound. Mm -hmm. It's a lot brighter. It's not as heavy or dark, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially images and words. That's a very bright, colorful album. Oh yeah. But it's so good. It feels like, there's, it feels like the album cover. It yeah. feels like there's just some weird, like you're in kind of this astral environment, mm-hmm. but there's still tangibility to things. Yeah. So that that album got them pretty big, mainly because of Pull Me Under. That ended up right. becoming, got rotated pretty heavily on MTV, the music video did. Mm-hmm. and Yeah, at eight minutes. Well, it got edited it, down it, yeah. for <laughs> that, but into like a four or five minute edit. But yeah, that happened. They got pretty big right off the, right out of the gate. Again, I won't say that's not out of the gate because they formed in like '86 and they slaved. And that first album tanked really badly. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. You can't even really find it anywhere. You mm-hmm. have to like listen to it on YouTube or like go out of your way to buy the CD on yeah. Amazon. Like it's not available to stream anywhere. Wow. Can't buy it on iTunes. So bad. It's not. Th- it's not that it's that bad. <laughs> They also the re- the reason why is it's not their decision. I think it's because their their original label like still has the rights to do whatever uh, they want with it, and for some reason they just feel like being bee holes. So, yeah. but images and words when that came out in ninety one, either ninety one or ninety two. I feel like it was ninety two. It probably was ninety two, but I'm gonna fact check that. It real sounds quick. late eighties. But it's got that 90s heaviness. 92. Yeah. So, so 92, they've been writing that album for like three years. And so that's why it's such a strong record. Um, then Awake comes out after. It's mm-hmm. not nearly as well received, although it's a really great record. It's a lot darker, mm-hmm. um, a lot heavier. But you can tell that also because the record executives saw that Pull Me Under was a big hit and that Images and Words was a big record. They're like, let's get radio singles. Come on, guys. Let's mm-hmm. write those shorter songs that we can put on the radio mm-hmm. and, you know, cash in on the grunge movement and mm-hmm. hard rock is big right now and all that. You can hear some attempts at that on Awake, but it's still a pretty dense, heavy, progressive record. And then Kevin Moore, their keyboardist, just ups and leaves because he just is grew to really hate the other band members. Really? Um, it's kind of mysterious. They don't talk in detail about, like, what happened. They he's, said that they weren't even aware that he was angry, that he was just quietly building up resentment, and then all of a sudden, before sad. the before the tour, he was just like, I'm done. I'm out of here. Screw you guys. And they're like, what? <laughs> I mean, he was the secret weapon on that Images and Words oh, album. Oh, he is. He was, oh, my goodness. There are, I always thought that was Jordan Rudis. There are a lot of people that said that, that say that Kevin Moore was the best keyboard player that they had. 
Now, on a technical level, I'll say no because Jordan Rudess is inhuman and just. Te- <laughs> but there's something about the melodies that that Kevin Moore writes that mm-hmm. I can, I I don't fully get behind it because Jordan is just so good. But oh, yeah. I there there's something special about the keyboard parts on those first three records that I'm just like this just feels really good. I would say he's even better on Awake. Just the the sounds he's using, um, his keyboards get put to the front a lot, and he comes up with a lot of really cool stuff on Awake. Um, so so he leaves, and they try and make or they. They make the very, very divisive and almost career-killing Falling Into Infinity album, which is where the record executives not only were suggesting, but really butchered that album to try and have a commercially successful album. Okay. Like, there's a very famous um, demo version of that album with the songs and the arrangements that Dream Theater originally wanted, and it is an incredible record. Well, I can imagine. I mean, if you let the it's artists do what so, they want to do. It's so good. But they were just like, no, there's too many long songs on this. Let's take these <laughs> off completely. Let's cut these down by about three or four minutes. Let's let's put some more hooks in there. Yeah, let's make some music videos. You can't let Dream Theater mm-hmm. just write normal songs. They just don't do that. <laughs> yeah, and so Falling Into Infinity has garnered the reputation of being, like, their most disappointing album. Although... It is still good, but there's mm-hmm. a couple songs on there that you're just like, yeah, you can tell that they're like trying to get on radio with this one, and that's just never who they were. No. It was they Pull Me Under wasn't meant to be a radio mm-hmm. hit; it just ended up becoming one. Right, and that's that's what it should be, really. Mm-hmm. If you think about it. So, um, for one album, they had Derek Sherinian on keyboards. Okay, that's and, an unfamiliar name. Mm-hmm. But then after that he was let go because they just he didn't make the music that they wanted him to make okay. he kind of came a bit more from a jazzy background that shouldn't be too bad no and the thing is he's a great keyboard player it's not that he had a lack of talent mm-hmm. and who knows there could have been also some internal conflicts that they've never talked about mm-hmm. out loud um but it was at that point that jordan rudess comes into the picture firstly because he ends up um doing the first Liquid Tension Experiment record mm-hmm. with Portnoy, Petrucci, and Tony Levin. And they were just, like, so blown away in their chemistry, and they were just like, why don't you come into Dream Theater? Mm-hmm. And so he makes his debut on Scenes from a Memory in 1999. And so Scenes is the big turning point album from them. That's the one with all those all the big hits. We have two, we got two on this, on and the, it's also got the Dance of Eternity. Uh-huh, and in my opinion it's the best record they ever made it is a perfect record okay i I love it with all it's in my favorite records of all time this is jordan judas's first that's his debut record that's what a debut yes and so (laughs) um the way that they approached this record is that that they did the exact same thing rush did where um you know record executives with rush were pressuring them after caress of steel was a big misfire Mm-hmm. Saying, just write radio songs, you know, stick with what's easy, go with the formula. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, we're going to make the album the way we want to make it. And they went and, to the extreme mm-hmm. with so, their 2112, basically. Yes. That's cool. And so just kind of, you know, winning their wow. freedom in that way by truly making the album they want to make. 
They really are. And letting the letting the you know the music speak mm-hmm. for itself, and the audience comes, even if radio doesn't. Scene from Memory was the exact same thing. They produced it themselves. They did not let any outside influence into the studio. They they, mi- they mixed it, produced it, recorded it. Well, I mean, all that. I mean, to an extent. To an extent, like they had engineers and stuff come in, but they were not hired by the label. It was people they chose. People that they knew were not going to stab them in the back and do what, you mm-hmm. know, the executives want. They told the label, you won't hear a single note of this until it's finished. And we put it onto your uh, table. Uh, uh. And it was a big risk because mm-hmm. Falling Into Infinity did not do well. Mm-hmm. But that album exploded and became this cult, big underground record. Mm-hmm. Well, I can imagine. What, what year was that? 99. Wow, that recent. Mm-hmm. And so wow. it was with that album that they won their freedom. And from that point on, that's been the arrangement. They don't let anyone anyone from the label hear it until it's done. And they're the ones that go and pick out their producers if they're not producing it themselves. They pick their engineers, you know. They're not being dictated, we're going to have this guy come in and show you how it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, someone that they know is going to be on their side. And so from that point, that's when the classic period of Dream Theater begins, where they make the string of their best records. Because mm-hmm. right after that is Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence, which is a contender for their best album. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's weird. It's like a nearly two-hour-long album, and there's only six songs on it. What? <laughs> oh, my the, goodness. The last song is 42 minutes long. Oh, my goodness. But it's a masterpiece. Oh my goodness. Um, Train of Thought comes right after that, and that's mm-hmm. when they really delve into their heavy metal side. Mm-hmm. And then Octavarium follows right oh, after that. Oh, yeah, we need, we need to talk about that one. And then Systematic Chaos <laughs> comes in after that, which is another just amazing record. Mm-hmm. Is that the one with Stream of Consciousness on it? No. Oh. Stream of Consciousness is on Train of Thought. Oh, which okay. makes sense, because they're both like mean the same Right, thing. right. No, that's... Um, well, we've got a song from this list that's from Systematic Chaos. Okay. And then, um, in 2010 is when Black Clouds and Silver Linings came up. And that's, came out, and that's when the band had another shift, when Mike Portnoy all of a sudden leaves the band. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't know why? No, we know why. Okay. We didn't know why at first, or at least we didn't know the whole story. Mm-hmm. So, Mike Portnoy was pretty much the leader of the band. He was involved in just about every major decision-making part of the band. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, putting together the set lists. He was, had a lot to do with the promotion, um, doing all the meet and greets and the interviews and having a lot of say in the visuals and the artwork and the stage show. And, you know, he's someone that his mind just goes a million miles a second. Mm -hmm. And he was starting to feel burnt out. And so... He brought up to the band, why don't we just like take a five-year... Well, it was rumored to be handed up debunking this later. That wasn't five years. He was saying, let's take an extended sabbatical because we just we haven't taken a break from the right t- record tour cycle. Mm-hmm. He was like, let's... You know, I'm sure he was probably thinking like two or three years where they just don't do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe do other side projects and mm-hmm. just kind of let the, the dream theater muse refresh itself. No one else in the band agreed with them. They were just well, like... That's, that's weird, because they do have that one side project. They yeah. have a liquid tension experiment. Yeah, they? but that was that was done pretty quickly in between records. Uh, I mean, they mm-hmm. were they didn't take... They were, I would say, ever since 99 with Scenes from Memory, there was 
about an expected two-year gap in between every album. Because they would spend about a year-plus touring, you know, take about three to four months to record. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like they didn't ever, like, have, like, a six- or eight-month period where they just weren't doing anything Dream Theater-related. Hmm. And so, you know, poor dogs burn out, but everyone else is just like, no, we want to, we don't want to stop. We want to keep going. And it was kind of like he made, gave them an ultimatum, just like, well, you know, then I'm, I'm not going to do anything. And they like called his bluff and was just like, okay, then we'll go get another drummer. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> and he you thought can't it, replace him, but they, but they did with who, with another Mike, Mike Mangini. Oh, I've heard this name. I've heard this name. Mike Mangini holds the world record for beats per minute played. He has the fastest hands in the world. Wow. All he can do is play a million notes per second. Well, I mean, you know, that's what... But, I mean, he was a, he was the head of drums at a prestigious music college, like the dean. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and he had been in bands before. Um, he just... That wasn't what he was known for as much. He was more known as, like, a technician, like someone that would go around and do clinics. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he would appear on different shows and just kind of like, just, he was like this, this guru of drumming that, you know, but he was never tied to a band. So this was actually his first time really getting to be in like a high profile band. There's a really great documentary that I actually watched because they released it because we didn't know who the drummer was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I was a Dream Theater fan by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, what year was this, by the This way? was in 2011 when all this was happening. Wow. Okay. So I remember they, they did this this YouTube documentary. They released in three parts where they were showing all of the best drummers in the world were coming to audition to be in Dream Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and like just some of the all-time greats, like Marco Miniman came in. And I was just like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? And then I remember I seeing Mike Mangini. I was just like, oh, my God, Mike Mangini. And I can't remember, there was a couple others that I, like, I remember the, the names of the bands, I can't remember their names, mm-hmm. but I was just like, these guys are not just, like, your average drummers coming in, like, these, these all could be, like, have very content careers doing what they're doing, mm-hmm. but Dream Theater just has that uh, prestige to it that was just, right. like, that's gonna take you to the next level. Right. And so at the end of the three-part series, they announced to the public for the first time, Mike Mangini is our drummer. And then the, later that year is when Dramatic Turn of Events comes out. And that is a record that I did not like at first because I was very much a pro-Portnoy guy. I couldn't imagine the band without him. Right. That album right. has grown on me over time to where it's one of my favorites now. Mm-hmm. It's such an epic record. We're going to do an episode on the Mangini era. We're, we're just, everything in this is Portnoy era. Mm-hmm. Just because that's the best place to start. Right. Um, but... They released that, then the self-titled album came out in 2013. Oh, I've heard that's pretty bad. It's not their best. Yeah. There's a couple great songs, but overall, it's and it just doesn't sound very good either. But then The Astonishing comes out in 2015. A very polarizing record, but one that I love dearly. A giant two-and-a-half-hour concept record. Ooh, I like concept records. Oh, it's a great concept record. I like concept records. And then we've got the newest one that came out last year, 2019. Distance, we did. Distance Over Time. Which, yes, we did. I remember that. Ooh, Distance Over Time is really good. Yeah. Really yeah. good. I remember listening to some songs off of that and 
I wasn't really into the prog stuff back then. And so I was kind of like, ah, this is cool, I guess. I'll get into it when I get into it. I mean, I never did. <laughs> well, we'll we'll come to it at some point. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the brief history of Dream Theater. So we've only got two guys that have been there since the beginning, which is both the Johns. John Myung, John Petrucci. Mm-hmm. And that's funny because those were like technically the two that started it. Cause they I mean, they've known each other since grade school. Grade school, yeah. So, so that's a, a brief history of Dream Theater. I tried to be brief at least. That so pretty brief. So let's so let's talk about um, like what Dream Theater's music is. Oh boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> if I had to describe it, I would say it's it's take the the early prog from the seventies with the weird time signatures that kind of jolt you around, but adding that heaviness in there to really give it a kick, but letting those time signatures sit well. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things that I notice about Dream Theater, it's not like they throw in a, in a time signature to make you feel like something's off. Mm-hmm. Although they do that, that's not the only reason they'll put in... They're really time... they're really good at making it feel organic. They're really good at... Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Which is what Rush was so good at. Right, exactly. So uh, that's why I'd say they're kind of the spiritual successors of Rush. They kind really Kind of were. like how... Muse is the spiritual successors of Queen. Mm-hmm. Even though they're not the same genre, they really are kind of the same idea. Yeah. They're, they're the next logical conclusion. They were not the first prog metal band, but they were definitely um, the ones that set the template. Technically, you know, Queen's Reich predates them as far as getting big. Uh-huh. But Dream Theater is kind of like every prog metal band that came after. Was... Until, I would, until I would say, like, Probably the mid two thousands. There was a Dream Theater remake. Oh yeah, yeah. Every, that's just yeah. what everyone was doing. And then it's really now prog metal is is more influenced by like Gent. Oh. Oh. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Say what you want about Gent. Yeah, I, I won't. I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> that's that's really kind of more where prog metal is now. There's less Dream Theater clones out there, but. You know, most of them have fallen to the wayside where Dream Theater are still making great music. Right. And 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 most of the prog metal scene, you talked about this a while back. I mean, back when we were both in After Dawn, that, that prog metal's moving away from the real technical Dream Theater stuff and closer to the Devin Townsend stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, I hope you're right, because where he's going with his music is in this kind of the same idea as what Dream Theater did. Yeah. And and having just really challenging what music is but keeping it heavy. Yeah. So Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know. It's just like Dream Theater's kind of lost their influence on the, the young scene. Yeah. But they don't need it anymore at this point. They can just be who they are and yeah. just make good music and not have to worry about influencing. But they did have their time. All of the prog metal bands that came up in the mid to late nineties and early two thousands all like worshipped at their altar. Then I would say, like, Opeth changed that in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. and you had a lot of clones of that, and then by, like, 2010, that's when Gent took over the prog metal scene. Gent. Um, oh, man. I actually don't mind Gent. Certain Gent. It's, there's a lot of crappy Gent There's some there. really crappy Gent where it's just all open string rhythms. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there, there's, there is some great Gent out there. 
Well, we'll, we'll, we'll when we do our On music, occasion. when Exception we do our when we do our music history, we'll uh, we'll take a stop into the jet world. That'll, that'll be a while. It will be a while. That'll it's probably going to be one of the last ones we do in that series because yeah. it's one of the most recent trends. I would say it was the last trend in metal that's really like to where everyone jumped on board it. Oh, for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, when you, when you, what you have with Dream Theater is just this really heavy emphasis on melody, mm-hmm. on making sure that everything is musical, um, even if the music is really weird. Mm-hmm. But everything is very classically sh- and romantically structured. To where, you know, you have a lot of these these reprisals of different themes. It's not like where you have, say, a prog metal band like Between the Buried and Me. That's not as concerned with reprising melodies as more as it's just it's moving forward. Mm-hmm. Where Dream Theater really makes a lot of effort to introduce a lot of themes right at the beginning. And then... Connect everything. And then connects everything. Nothing, yes. nothing ever really feels yes. out of left field. Sort of like 2112. Exactly. Which, again, it makes sense that Rush is kind of their closest connection because that's what Rush did. Right. They they never would just throw in a part for the sake of having it. There was always a meaning and a purpose to it, and it usually was always foreshadowed somewhere early. Well, I mean, if they play the same riff too many times, they'll change. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the only rule. Yeah. That's the only constraint. And, <laughs> and the 12-tone scale. I don't think they've ever done any microtones. Well, I'm sure they have, but... Who knows? But not on this list. I'm, none that I'm, I've heard I'm of. not a good enough authority to say yes or no to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but it'd be interesting. Though. Yeah. So there's just there's a lot of deep music and there's a lot of emotion into what they're putting into. Um, you know, it's not just you know heavy for the sake of being heavy. Like there's a lot of um, you know they're willing to go to the softer parts, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of different uh, lyrical themes that show up in different songs yeah. that are kind of the same. Mm-hmm. They have they have their own theme. Yeah. So. And maybe that's just coincidental. Maybe it's just. Mm, I mean, that's the kind of lyrics. I think it also have. depends on who's writing the songs because they had they have several different lyricists in the band. Ooh, uh, I would okay. say Petrucci is the main lyricist. He's written the most lyrics, but... Is he the one with all the, ah, uh, spirit carries on, ah, uh, transcendentalism? Who's that? Yeah. Because whoever that is seems to write the most lyrics. Yeah, I would I would say so. Um, James Labrie will tend to write more, like, personal lyrics, like about, like, people he knows, or mm-hmm. about events, Mm-hmm. Like, he's the one that wrote Sacrifice Sons, which is about 9-11. Mm-hmm. Wrote the song about his mom dying of Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and, um, you know, kind of those songs. Portnoy would usually write, like, the really edgy songs. Um, like, he he wrote a series of five songs spread across five albums about his um, fight with alcoholism. It was called The 12-Step Suite. And on every... <laughs> album from six degrees to black clouds contained a piece of that and then the whole grand plan was to put it together live but then he left the band before they could do that oh oh that Uh, sucks but he tends to write the really aggressive really dark lyrics Mm -hmm. um and then every 
every blue moon, the young will write something that's just you read and you're just like, what the heck does this mean? <laughs> it's so mysterious, just like him, because uh, he like never talks. Yeah, he never talks. But I mean, he's the kind of bassist that'll just run thirty-two notes at eight hundred BPM and. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I watched a live version of, of Dance of Eternity and when he does it that. It opens up to the bass solo, and I'm, it, his fingers are just a blur. Yeah, he's using all four of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, and I don't know how crazy. he's he's one of the greatest bass players how to ever. His fingers don't fall off. And how how have I not heard his name thrown around among the greatest basses of all time? You know, with with Geddy Lee and Lemmy Kilmister. I mean, and, I mean he's and Cliff Burton. He belongs there, right? I would say he's even a. a above them as far as just pure skill level there's stuff that he does that i'm just like i don't get it i don't mm-hmm. even get how a human being because and he never uses a pick ever there's not a single time that i've ever seen him use a pick everything it's is a fingers. little scary and he plays the six string yep which blows my mind because now you have so you've a, got the low string yeah, and an extra the low high string and an extra high but um so yeah picture <laughs> John Petrucci is one of the greatest guitar players to ever live. Oh, yeah, no, I could go on for days about that. Mike Portnoy <laughs> and Mike Mangini are both among the greatest drummers mm-hmm, to ever live. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan Rudess is one of the greatest yeah, I mean, my, keyboard players to ever live. One of my friends who's a huge 80s fan just loves Jordan Rudess. Mm-hmm. He's not a, he's not even a Dream Theater guy. He doesn't like Dream Theater's music, but every time Jordan Rudess says something, he'll pay attention. Mm-hmm. You know, like Jordan Rudis plays this kind of keyboard. I think I might get this. I'm like, oh my goodness, you don't even listen to his music. Mm-hmm. But but there's there's <laughs> there's kind of one weak link in the band. And yeah, that's, and that's Mr. James Labrie. Yeah. So of course, with the Images and Words album, he was over and above. Oh yeah, and he is on Awake as well. But um, uh, so there was an incident ooh. in between Awake and Falling into Infinity, and there's a lot of debate about whether this actually made a difference or if. There's a lot of people who say, he sucked the whole time. Because the, the thing that I always hear from people when I try to introduce them to Dream Theater is just like, ugh, I hate the, vo- the voice. The vocals are really? terrible. I love the vocals. See, I do too. I love the vocals. Oh my god! But that's always the complaint that I get. Though now, the later music's... on in their career, I'd say the vocals get pretty bad. But I actually think that he's done a bit of a, a parabola where I would say like in the early 2010s, like, on self-titled, he was not very good. Mm-hmm. But asto- lately, astonishing and distance over time, he, he actually sounds better. So so he kind of he kind of deteriorated like most vocalists do. Yeah, so the incident that happened in the 90s was that he got food poisoning and that he vomited so hard that he burst his vocal cords. Okay. But... They didn't. He didn't have enough time to fully heal because they were in do or die. Like they weren't big enough to be able to like cancel a tour to let him recover. They took off as much time as they could, and then they were just like, I mean, they didn't want to kick him out of the band because they were like, this isn't his fault. I mean, you know, he just got bad luck. Right. But you know, we don't want to just say, you know, well, you can't sing as good anymore, so you're out. Right. Because you know they'd grown close to him. Mm-hmm. And so they were just like, you know, what do you want to do? You know, and he was just like, let me just like take a couple weeks. But it wasn't as long as the doctor was telling him to. And then he had to go back out on tour. Yeah, with with that stuff on and, images and words singing that high. Mm-hmm. Oh my and, goodness. And let me tell you what, I think he's even better in a 
awake. Awake. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but you can hear a big difference between that and falling into infinity. Really? Falling into infinity, you, you're just like, his voice has changed. And See, I thought he did pretty good on Scenes from a Memory. But, th- but then Scenes from a Memory, it changes again to where it's kind of now the classic Labrie that we know. To where he sounds like that pretty much all the way through the And that, that's the one right after Falling Into Infinity, of course. Yeah. On Falling Into Infinity, it's got an extra weird aspect to it. Like, it's almost like he's tr- learning to re-sing again. Hmm. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I've had to do that before. So, but, and then, when you hear him live, it's, it's not very good. Even I will admit that. Yeah. His live voice is not the mm-hmm. best. But... I've found that when you are physically in the audience, which I have been twice, that you, can't really... you don't notice it. Yeah. Or rather, and it I would say matter you don't care. It doesn't matter either. Like when I was... the energy of the crowd. Yeah. And you're singing along anyway. And, right. Yeah. And you're watching everyone play. Yeah. I would just be there singing along, but watching John Petrucci anyway. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't care. Yeah. I, I guess <laughs> I should bring up the fact that I've gotten to see them twice. But the first oh. time was right before Portnoy left. Because they, mm. they did a short supporting tour for Iron Maiden when Black Clouds came out. Mm. So talk about an incredible show. Dream Theater yeah. opens and then I get to see Iron Maiden <laughs> yeah. right after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to see them on tour for The Astonishing where they did the entire album live. And then did a short encore of three classics. Mm. Um, which I'll tell you, I'll just tell you, it was As I Am, Spirit Carries On, Pull Me Under. Which, what a, what a trio. What a trio. Oh my gosh. Um, But then, yeah, the whole, that was really cool. And that was here in Tulsa at the Brady. That was about three years ago. That was three years ago. That was a great It's not a massive venue, is it? No. But it was sold out. I can imagine, yeah. Apparently it was like the first time in like 20 years that they'd been to Tulsa. Wow. And... Labrie said, we're going to come back here again real soon, and they haven't come back yet, so... Ooh, hey, maybe they'll, maybe they'll come back. Maybe after Big Run. Guys, if you're listening to this, <laughs> there are people in Tulsa that want you to come play when all this COVID crap is done. Yeah. <laughs> come play some prog metal for us. Yeah, we would yeah. greatly appreciate it. Um, that, would be, that would be quite a show. Mm-hmm. So... But, I mean, Dream Theater, it's just their collection of the greatest musicians right. in the world coming together to make some of the best music ever made. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Yeah, every single one of them is a, a excellent master. musician in their own right. Mm-hmm. They could they could be the star of the show if they were in any other band. Yeah. Um, you know, normally a band will have that one weak link. I mean, it's, it's Labrie here, but, mm-hmm. like, not to discount him at all. Yeah, I... So... And, and it, and it, it he deserves all, a he deserves a lot more credit than people give him. Right, and it, it all revolves around you know how is your voice feeling today in the studio, and mm-hmm. how are you live, and all this stuff. And, yeah, and it's hard for vocalists as as they if the band progresses, because mm-hmm. the instrumentalists will always get better. I mean, that's just yeah the fact of learning your instrument. I mean, you see it with Rush. You know, it's rare to see a vocalist get better with age when they hit a certain point. Right. Um, I would say one of the most notable exceptions would probably be Halford, but it's just because he's embraced his new, older voice. Yeah. 
Bruce Dickinson, I would say, also. That too, yeah. Has, has his voice has aged right. so well. Right, but then you see guys like David Lee Roth, and it's just sad. Mm, yeah. So, um, I, I do remember one of the first Dream Theater songs I've ever heard was uh, Through the Looking Glass. Yeah, that's and, not that's not the best one to start and with. And that's when I uh, that's when I realized maybe their instrumentals are better. <laughs> but that's of course before I discovered uh, the songs that we're going to talk about today, and yeah. you know, pull me under and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, well, I think this is a good time to take a break. So yeah, because we have a lot to talk about the specifics of the song because every single one of them is crafted very particularly. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear all that. So. Um, So we'll go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk about the six songs that we've picked for this episode. So stay tuned. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Dream Theater and their history and their legacy and their music. And now it's time to talk about the six songs that we have chosen for this episode. Mm-hmm. So, Lucas, what do I mean by that? So, for those of you that are listening for the first time, um, the, what we're doing in this section is we're picking out six songs for us to be able to concretely talk about what Dream Theater is, what their music sounds like, as well as providing you that have never listened to them before or have very little experience with them the best possible first step to take in listening to their music. So, this is not me picking my six favorite or what I think are the six best Dream Theater songs, but rather songs that is going to be your best first step in discovering this band, as well as sequencing them and ordering them in a way to where they transition well off of each other and that there's an emotional flow from start to finish. So it's not just a random hodgepodge of songs thrown together. That There's intent, there's purpose, to give you an experience, especially those of you that are listening for the first time. Um, so if you want to listen to these songs, which I highly suggest you do, there is a link in the episode description that will take you to a Spotify playlist. Um, you can listen to those songs there, the bonus song, as well as all the songs from our previous episodes. So, um, go check that out. And without that, any further ado, let's go ahead and get started all with right. what I think is the, uh, the, the best place to start. Oh, it's a great place to start. It introduces the band really nicely without putting too much on the listener. Yeah. This is As I Am off of the... Train of Thought. It's off of Train of which Thought. Which came okay. out in 2003. Okay. This song's pretty heavy. Yes. But it's not necessarily extremely technical yet. No. And so it's and not... And that, that's yeah. my intent. I wanted to give something that is, you know, like we're starting in the, the shallow water and we're kind of moving mm-hmm. forward. Right. So I wanted to give something that is a good way to start off with a lot of energy. This is one of the classic Dream Theater songs. Like, I would say this is like in their top five. I mean, again, this Pull Me Under is the only one that would be considered a hit. But like, as far as like, if you were to say, what are the most iconic Dream Theater songs? As I Am is up there. Really? Mm-hmm. I've never, never It's heard kind it. of become like a modern metal anthem. And what a lot of people will say, that's one of the best Dream Theater songs ever. I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, and they, they play it live a lot. Oh, they should. It's, it's, it's got the classic, is, does this intro the album? Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's got the classic album intro where you got the weird atmospheric fade-in, and then you have the instruments kind of build on each other, and then you have that slow riff at the beginning. I'm, I'm expecting Tim Owens to come out and say, now let's see what you're made of, you know? <laughs> right? Well, it's, it's got kind of the same feel. Um... And I would sing sing that part every time I listen to this song because mm-hmm. it just it fits so well. Um, before we get into the main riffage of the song, it introduces the sound and the fact that we're in heavy world. Yeah. So. Um, and I mean, at their core, yeah. they're a prog metal band, and so this is going to show real quick that these guys are metal. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. this is a metal song. Um, a little cool fact about the the fade in. So there is a, um, there are, let's, let me count here. One, two, three, four of their albums in a row are connected by whatever is the last thing you heard on the previous album is the first thing you hear on the next album. Oh, that's cool. So Scenes from Memory ends with static and the same static intro six degrees. Six degrees ends with a fade out of, of that note and Train of Thought has the same note, but faded in instead. That's pretty cool. So it's, a, so it's so it's if you listen to the two albums back and forth, it's it goes down, and then there's like five second silence, and then it comes back up, and then train of thought ends with a low E piano note, and Octavarium starts with that same piano note. Hmm. But then Octavarium breaks the cycle. But then we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So it's the last album in that series. Mike Portnoy came up with that idea, and then by Octavarium was just like, oh, crap. Now this is going to be like a thing we have to do every album. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he, he finds a good little workaround for it. Again, it's something that is going to be more applicable when we talk about Octavarium later. But um, that's, that's what that fade-in is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, As I Am is... It's just kind of like a classic Dream Theater song. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of frills to it. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's a great anthemic, just punch in the face. Right, but there's still those, I mean, this is the song that we covered, by the way. Yeah, so and... go, if you go to our YouTube channel, you'll hear us. This was definitely the hardest song to put together so far. <laughs> oh my gosh, by far, yeah. I can't even imagine, because I haven't heard it yet. Mm-mm. At no, the time I'm, of this recording. I'm, yeah, I'm still working on it at the time of this recording. Yeah, I mean, I'm very curious about that solo. It's, it's, yeah, expect something special. I'm not going to comment on that, but you can expect something special. Um, because it is, a, it's a very difficult solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so jo- tell, okay, tell me about the solo. Okay, tell, so. Mr. Guitar Player. So, John Petrucci is the type of guitarist who will write riffs that are basically solos in their difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a song that's not like that, even though there are those, you know, kind of different hits and different notes that kind of add a little bit of color and flair into things, you know, especially during the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, this song doesn't do that, but he absolutely rips during the solo. I mean, oh. It's, a, it's pretty standard up until that point. Right. And, and when it goes into that bass riff, that boo do 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 you know, he mm-hmm. follows that for about half a measure and then opens into the solo. And that's... Something that's very difficult to do, but they did it. I don't know how to explain how it's difficult, but it just it it 
I don't know. It just is. <laughs> because you're going straight from a rhythm section into the solo, but you never can pinpoint where the solo starts. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, obviously, like, there's a solo section, and, you know, there's a not solo section, but you can't pinpoint, like, this is the start, this is the note where he starts the solo. Mm-hmm. Um, it also shows that he has a lot of speed. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, guitar players like Dimebag Daryl have a lot of speed in their soloing, uh, John Fusey has a lot of speed as well as melodic power. Yes, and it's so clean. Yeah, I it feel is. like you can feel it's, the power of him destroying his you, guitar strings. Yeah, you can you can hear every note that he picks, uh-huh. and it's all in time. It's not just him playing a flurry of notes, which there's something cool about that. I mean, there's something kind of inspiring about seeing somebody else play just a ripping solo of a million notes per second, but at some point, you have to play the John Petrucci and decide what notes are important. Yeah. And he does both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, and I love that. I love that so much. Yes, yeah. This is this has also become one of in one of John Petrucci's most iconic guitar solos. Right. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So <laughs> let's let's talk about what this song is about. That, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I figured you were going to. <laughs> um, so they were on tour, I believe, with Queensrÿche, and um, not Chris DeGarmo because I don't think he was in the band at that point who is their classic era guitar player, a great, great guitar player, but I think someone else that was filling in for him or had become the new guitar player by that time, they were touring together, and he, like, tried to critique Pachucci's playing. <laughs> and that, like, pissed him off. <laughs> oh, you, don't, you don't tell you don't do Pachucci to... how to play. Oh, my goodness. Like, there are just some guitar players you can't do that. Uh-huh. I mean, Michelangelo Badio... John Petrucci's one of them. I mean, Alex Lifeson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just can't. Like, even if you are better, just... Yeah. You're never going to be the legendary status of John Petrucci. No. And so, it's just... He was already establishing himself as a guitar god by right. 2002. Right. <laughs> you know, he had, he had had enough, especially seen from memory as a guitar player's dream. Or nightmare, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um... And you can just, you can hear in the lyrics, he's saying, you can't touch the way that I play. Yeah. I mean, you know, don't tell me what's in, don't tell me how to write. Yeah. It's just, you know, someone that is, he can, and I think he could tell the attitude of the guy that was talking to him that was coming, it was not meant to be like a buddy, like just throwing out a tidbit, it was like meant to be condescending. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just, and I think that this also serves as a meta on all the the people out there that hate Dream Theater that are just like, well, they they should write shorter songs and, you know... Take me as I am. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> they don't they don't care about... Especially at that point, they didn't care about getting famous. Rock and roll. I won't yeah. change to fit your plan. That can also be, a, you know, allegorical to when the record producers were trying to get them to sound a specific way to get on radio. Um... To the doubtful, I demand take me as my as I am. Right, and so the doubtful being just the people that are skeptical and just like, eh, you, I don't think you guys are all that, and just mm-hmm. like you know, whatever, we don't need you. Yeah. We're gonna be us mm-hmm. and rock and roll. Yeah. You can you can take <laughs> us or leave us. We don't care. I love the lyrics because because they know it. they know that the people that love them are diehard fans. Right. 
I would say that they're probably the biggest underground band in the world. As far as just a band that is okay. that never got to that radio household name level, like a band like Metallica or Iron Maiden or Judas Priest did, but that just like is yeah, or even Slayer. Yeah, but that is just loved around the world. I would say like North America is one of the places that they're least popular. Yeah, yeah, they are huge, and it's why they South America. I'm sure their their North American tours are always so short. Man, that's so sad. They spend like always like a full year touring the rest of the world, and they do like three months in North America, and that's it. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, just I think that it's it's kind of you know it's not just directed towards that guitar player that dissed him but also just you know and i think that also makes it a good way to start off the set list is just you know take it or leave it this in this first song we're gonna present to you uh, a challenge Mm -hmm. either accept the music or walk away and then also at the very beginning of the course it was a good lyrical play to say to those who understand i extend my hand Mm -hmm. because it's like they're not the only band who gets this kind of crap. Yeah. Right? And and the norm- other, other guitar players get that kind of crap all the time. It's mm-hmm. like, you, you suck as a guitarist. <laughs> okay, nobody, nobody told opinion. you to listen to my music. Like, or at least I didn't, whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody did and you just didn't like it. Whatever. <laughs> but yeah, like, no nobody, nobody asked. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I also want to throw so. out a lyrical highlight of... I've been trying to justify you in the yes. end. I will justify you. Yeah. That's always been one of my favorite. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that if I got to do yearbook quotes, I would have put that. Because I remember at really? that time in particular, I was like, that was my favorite lyric I'd ever yearbook heard. Yearbook quotes. You didn't do yearbook quotes. Nope. Oh, that's sad. A couple grades, because I was a private Christian school, and a couple grades before me abused that right. And so like for oh. three years, they said, no senior oh. quotes. And then I think they brought it back later. That was part of that little window. My, my senior quote's actually coming up in a future episode. So, <laughs> stay tuned for that. Um, it's not in this episode. So I think I, you already know what it is. I think I know what yeah. artist it is, because I don't think it's the other ones that we already know about. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, uh, it, 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 anyway. I just, I didn't know this song existed before we listened to it. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked it. I, I, I like to see the very heavy side of dream theater without the super technical side and it's mm-hmm. nice to have that duality yeah it's nice to have some dynamic with with a artist an artist who is constantly in motion oh! <laughs> between different musical ideas especially in the following song constant motion yes which so, is off the album systematic chaos so this was one that was after this um, is the one after octavarium, octavarium. so okay. 2007 is when this came out Okay. Um, so, this song, for me, it's we're keeping the momentum moving, but we're upping the complexity and yeah. the intensity. Mm-hmm. So, this is... We're this still is, not there yet. But no, up. but we're, we're taking a step up. This is still a shorter song compared... Like, we talk... There's always a joke in Dream Theater that, like, an average song length of them is, like, in the eight to 12 minute range. Yeah. That's like a, that would be a normal band's three to five minute song. Right. And like a short song for them is just like, Oh, it's only six or seven minutes. Right. 
Yeah. And the thing about Dream Theater is that they're so good at not making you feel like the song is really long. Mm -hmm. Because, again, all the parts are intentional. Everything leads smoothly into one another. Right. And you don't ever feel like it's just like, oh, they stayed on this section too long. Mm -hmm. Everything always feels necessary. And so, be, and everything's always very interesting. So mm -hmm. it doesn't, you don't have that feeling of just like, they just played this riff for the 12th time in a row just to extend the, the play count. Or I've got all these pieces that don't fit together and just makes the song drag on. Mm -hmm. um, like this feels like it could be a four minute song, but it's yeah. six minutes. Mm -hmm. So this song was written by Mike Portnoy. Okay. He wrote it about himself and about his OCD and his hyperactive brain. And him always being in constant motion. Yep. Booking the gigs and doing mm -hmm. the meet and greets. And him and him recognizing that it's a that has the potential to be a dangerous force in his life, that it can lead him to burnout, which it did. Which it did. Wow. And now he's not in the band. That's some that's some uh self fulfilling prophecy there. Uh-huh. I mean that opening Kinda lyric like a limelight, I'm just saying. That opening lyric, tunnel vision at rocket speed. Yeah. I mean that's just that's you know, that's how he lived his life. He's he's moving super fast, but he's only, like, looking at what's right in front of him mm -hmm. instead of looking what's around him. I will say that if this was the first song, I would not have appreciated this song quite as much. Mm -hmm. Because of, of the way that Labrie does his vocals mm -hmm. and, and the vocal melody, it's like he's trying to be really intense, but that's just not what his voice does. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he gets a lot of help from Portnoy in the background vocals on this song, mm -hmm. which I love it whenever they do the back and forth. Mm -hmm. on the, uh, it's on the second verse. Uh, uh, focus here, focus there. Uh, Can I see the light falling down through the night? It sounds like they're just trying to string a bunch of words together that kind of sound cool. Well, no, it lyrically makes sense. It sounds like a preteen wrote the lyrics. I mean... Portnoy was never the best lyricist yeah. in the band. Petrucci was definitely always the best one. Right. But... Right, we can get some, some great lyrics in the uh, fifth and sixth songs. Mm -hmm. So, um, But, I mean, that's not the point of this song. To no. me, at least. So, yeah. we'll, we have yet to get to the, the interesting part of this song. So, mm -hmm. I'll let you continue. Yes. So, um, this was the lead single off of that album. And okay. whenever they toured, that was always the song that they opened with. But it's actually the third song on the record. Okay. But this song is just is just so much fun. Like, it's still heavy, but it doesn't have, like, the darkness and heaviness of the first song. It's kind of got a bit more... Because it's, like, it's a bit more bouncy. It's, you know, even though it's... Mm -hmm. It's edgy and intense. It's not like, you know, dark and depressing mm -hmm. or like to where it's a little threatening. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of more of just like, you know, a, I always compare like what kind of stink face are you going to use whenever you're listening to it? Is it a frowning stink face or is it a you're kind of smiling stink yeah, face? Yeah, it's a smiling stink face to me. Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot of people compare this to like the riffing is very similar to Metallica. And I've, there's been some okay. people that I've showed this to before that didn't know who Dream Theater was, and they're like, is this Metallica? Especially when that the, that verse riff kicks in. Because it's a very kind of thrashy sounding riff. It with is. With the palm muting and the triplets and the galloping. And... I mean, there's, there's some riffs in this song that are definitely not Metallica. But yeah. like the majority of the riffs, I can see that. That's some pretty classic thrash stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then I think also the music 
definitely complements the idea of constant motion because everything is moving. Yeah. There's there's no times where where stuff is being held out like the drums, especially in the solo section, is I think it's some of the best Portnoy ever did because it's just mind bending how many things he's hitting at once, just constantly moving between cymbals and toms and yeah. and somehow keeping it all together, which is also a great tie into the name of the album, Systematic Chaos, because that's what this song is. It's chaotic sounding, but it's it's ordered, it's intentional, it's systematic. They brought order to chaos. Uh-huh. Wow. Controlled yeah, chaos. No, yeah, yeah, there you go, controlled chaos, yeah. But, yeah, which I totally think that that's probably what they were intending with, with that album and having right. constant motion. And I mean, just, you know, those two song, that those two titles very much influence the sound of this song. Right, um, right. The riff is just so um, spider-like to where it's just, it never stays on one note. It's da 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 Bass is following suit, and the solos are both the guitar solo and the keyboard solo are insane on this. Yeah, the guitar solo is what I was wanting to talk about. So yeah, go ahead and tell me about... You were warming up for one of our Area 52 performances, and this was, or was it warming up or we were tearing down? We were tearing down. And you were playing this song, and like, oh my gosh, what, what song is this? I need to listen to this. Because it was during the solo section. And he had just come out of the guitar solo, and then he did, like, those dive bombs that were all layered on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And layering guitars to make sounds like that is just amazing. I, yeah. I love layered guitars that are playing different things that all are controlled chaos. Mm-hmm. And then it breaks into the keyboard solo, of course. You know, and Jordan Rudis completely destroys somebody's keyboard. Um, His own keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure it wasn't someone else's keyboard. Well, I mean, it could have been the could have been the studios. Um, no, he uses his own gear. That's pretty cool. Because I mean, I'm pretty sure no one else has his gear. He like has a, he like makes stuff. That's weird. Like he's also like a, com- a keyboard engineer. That's weird. I. He's like constantly inventing different keyboards. He's that kind of guy. I've heard that with guitars, but I've never heard of that with keyboards. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's cool though. But um, it, I, I actually, I honestly thought this was like some kind of weird like Pantera song that I'd never heard before. Because those kind of dive bombs are things that that Dimebag would do. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff that Phil Anselmo freaks out about every time. He uses his Wayne bar to make sounds that nobody's ever heard before, which in reality Eddie Van Halen had been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. But um, and and Eddie Van Halen too. Um, and you, you uh-huh. know, turn your delay pedal on, hit some harmonics, and, and do that kind of thing, which can get old very fast. But hearing it again in, you know, me not having listened to Van Halen intently for a long time, hearing it again um, in a song that was so fast and upbeat and technical was really nice and refreshing and so then i had to listen to that song and and it was this point during the set that i knew we were listening to dream theater yeah i kind (laughs) of there was a part of me that was just like oh he's gonna know it because he just listened to this song right right right. but um um, yeah so so what what else what else are you picking out musically from this song um during the keyboard solo actually immediately after uh, Mark uh, Mark Portnoy. Good Mark Lord. Portnoy. Mike Portnoy plays that kind of double time uh-huh. drum uh, beat, and playing those double time drum beats should kind of muddy up the mix. Thinking logically, 
there'd be too much drums now and you're not going to be able to hear the keyboard solo. But somehow the sound engineers, you know, the, the real heroes of Dream Theater, I would say, because it's hard to mix stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you're able to hear the riff that the, the bass and the guitar are doing independently from each other and you're able to hear that fast drumming from Mike Portnoy and you're able to tell what Jordan Rudis is doing. Yeah. And I thought that I thought that was cool on a sound engineering level. So that's another thing I picked up. Yeah. But the, the vast majority of the song, I'd say, it's, it's kind of, compared to the other songs, it's not notable. It's probably, it's probably your weakest second song of a set in a while. Hmm. Interesting. That's not to discount from the song. Yeah. But... Compared to the rest of the songs. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, we've got some really, really great songs. Let's go ahead and go to the third one, because we're going to have a lot to talk about here. Okay. Um, Beyond this, this is, Life. Is this the this is the first scene? Yes. Scene from a memory? Uh-huh. Um, okay, start talking. <laughs> start talking, because there's, there's a lot. I mean, I thought this is another one of those songs that I thought was six minutes or something no, and then i actually a, looked like at the time it's like 12 minutes i'm like what yeah what but so anyway. beyond this life man this is a song that i feel is really underrated but i think is like one of the best songs that they've ever made mm-hmm. um this is definitely a centerpiece on the scenes from a memory and there's a lot of competition for being the main set piece of scenes from a memory mm-hmm. because there's so many top tier songs on that yeah album. have you listened to that album i haven't through? listened all the way through but every time i hear a new song from that album i don't know why i just don't sit down and listen to it i already did that with images and words but mm-hmm. um every time i hear a song from that album most notably the two on here and dance of eternity i'm just like oh goodness oh there's still more great songs too. I, and, and i'm sure they all flow together yes they do but there's yeah. only one break in the whole album and it's the halfway point where there's actual like silence in between songs oh okay but i mean like they all do they all tell a story or do they yes all... so the whole so let's talk about what scenes from yeah, memory is okay. about because we need to in order to understand what's going on lyrically and musically in both this song and the one we're going to talk about later mm-hmm. um so the whole thing is first off this is Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. That's the full name of this album. So it's a sequel to the song off of Images and Words, Metropolis Part 1. Mm-hmm. Which we'll also talk about that later. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was never They never meant to have a Part 2. The Part 1 was just meant to be like kind of meta, funny, tongue-in-cheek in the prog community. Just oh. like, let's just put a Part 1 just to like mess with people. Make <laughs> them think we've got this grand plan. And then it becomes like... A grand plan. Yeah. Um, and so originally, Metropolis Part 2 was supposed to be a 30-minute song that was supposed to close Falling Into Infinity. Mm. Record is said, no, you can't do that. And so they just decided, let's take that and just make it into a whole album. And this will be kind of our F.U. to the record exec saying, the song that you told us to cut, we just made a whole album out of it. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good album, too. Um, there are a lot of callbacks between metropolis the song and metropolis the album they yeah. you know it is meant to be a sequel musically but it's not a sequel lyrically um so the story of this album is that you've got a guy named nicholas who keeps having nightmares he keeps seeing a girl up in the mirror of this house mm-hmm. and like he keeps having the same dream night after night and he can't figure out what's wrong so he goes to a hypnotherapist so that he can be put in a trance and actually be lucid in his dream 
And so he goes and finds the girl in his dream and is just like, why do I keep dreaming about you? Like, why won't you leave me alone? And the girl tells her that he is her reincarnated self and that she was tragically murdered and that her spirit can't rest. And he has to find closure in order for her spirit to be able to move on. This is a nightmare. I'm getting chills. Oh my god. And this so, is like some Mastodon level yeah. astral projection. Uh-huh. So, ghost of Corellia. So he's <laughs> so he's investigating into this this, you know, 60, 70 plus year old murder mystery that was never solved. Well, mm-hmm. it was it was solved, but it wasn't the correct solution. It was justice was never done. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to figure out what's happening. And so not only do you have that, but then you have this, this interplay of him grappling with the fact that he, there's reincarnation is a thing and, um, him becoming, growing attached to his, to the spirit of the girl's name is Victoria and, you know, really learning to love her as a part of himself mm-hmm. and, you know, just appreciating the life that she lived and it becoming less about putting her spirit at ease as it's become part of himself as well. He becomes obsessed with it. He can't think about anything else than I've got to find out what happened. Because not only will it bring her peace, it'll bring me peace. He's finding purpose for the first time in his life. But this has nothing to do with the original uh, Metropolis. Song. No, I'm pretty sure Metropolis Part 1 is just gibberish. Really? It's just lyrics that are meant to sound really hoity-toity, spiritualistic, but I, I think Petruccia says, it's like, the whole song was kind of meant to be just, like, tongue-in-cheek. Let's make it sound really deep without sounds, actually being It deep. sounds like it's an allegory for something. Uh, and, I mean, they borrow several lyrics, but they purpose it, repurpose it to fit the scene from memory story. Hmm. Um, but, but this is the first song, the one we're talking about right now. It's not the first song on the oh, album. Not, okay. No. This is this is at almost the halfway point. Okay. So during Beyond This Life, this is where he's really digging into the what happened to the murder. He's looking at the old newspaper paper clippings. He's trying to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. And the whole motif that he keeps returning to is him just continuing to remember um, all that we are this time is carried beyond this life. Mm-hmm. You know, just. You know, nothing is temporary. Everything is eternal. And that motif doesn't show up until halfway through the song. Mm-hmm. And I guess you, that's what you could call the chorus. Right. I, I would say there's there's so many different choruses. Mm-hmm. Right? So, Our dreams have traveled far. What we have been is what we are. Yeah, that one, it, it, it shows up much earlier. Mm-hmm. And then you'll kind of play... They kind of play with that a couple times. Mm-hmm. And then they'll suddenly switch to the one you just mentioned. Yeah. I thought that was really cool because it's like... You're expecting them to go back to, like, the heaviness and whatever, but they don't. Mm-hmm. They change, and, they kind of modulate. And also, the uh, there's a theme throughout Scenes from Memory. Anytime that Labrie switches to the high falsetto, he's saying what Victoria is saying. So she's the one that's telling Nicholas, all that we are this time is carried beyond this life. She's kind of almost, like, teaching him about what's really eternal and what is, you know, that everything you do echoes in eternity. Hmm. Um, so, but, so he goes to the thing, like, the whole first is he's headline murdered, young girl killed. Like, he's mm-hmm. looking at what, what are the facts? What, what do people already know? He talk. they find out that, you know, let's find out about the killer. Um, 
a witness heard a horrifying sound. He ran to find a woman dead and lying on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, standing by her was a man, nervous, shaking gun in hand. Mm-hmm. The witness said he tried to help, but he turned the weapon on himself. Um, yeah. And so I, when I first heard that line, I didn't understand what it, what was actually factually happening for a second. I thought mm-hmm. I thought the witness had a gun and then killed himself, but I, I get it now. So mm-hmm. um, it was, so it was, was a, a murder suicide. Right. It was a murder suicide. Right. And and supposedly. Uh, and it wasn't. That's what we find out. A really? big twist at the end of the album. And so then after that point, um, he. Victoria starts showing him parts of her life. It's the scenes of her memory. Mm. And so he gets to see what her life was right before the murder happened. Mm -hmm. And we get introduced to her wayward lover. Uh, Mm. She wanted love forever, but he had another plan. That's my favorite part of the song. Because it's kind of that fast technical part, and then it slows down just enough, Mm -hmm. and it gets really heavy. It gets groovy. Yeah, yeah. She wanted love. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, it's instant headbang moment. Mm-hmm. So. He fell into an evil way. Yeah. She had to let him <laughs> down. She said, I can't, can't love a warrior man. man. So it's such the, a melodic like, uh, vocal line for such a heavy part. Yes, it is. But it's so groovy. It's mm-hmm. just... Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So that, that whole part is just showing that, you know, a potential suspect of who could have killed her. Because it's, you know, it's a, his, the, what we find out in the, throughout the story is that his name is Julian. Mm-hmm. And that he had a, a gambling and a drug problem. Mm-hmm. And that he, like, she loved him so much, but she also saw that it was just destroying himself and their relationship. And so she breaks up with him. Mm-hmm. And so the whole, the whole, the way that the cops saw it, because they know that it was Julian, that his body is the one that is found on. Mm-hmm. that, you know, killed himself as well. Um, they find in his pocket a suicide letter, um, which is the lyric, um, I feel that I just have one thing left to, to do, do. sooner take, take my, my life than live with losing you. Oh, no, that's another very well-delivered line. It doesn't sit rhythmically if anybody else were to write this song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that's kind of where Labrie kind of gets passed off. It's yeah. like, he, he, he wrote that. Like, he sung that. He came up with the, with the melody and mm-hmm. the rhythm. Which he does. He's, do he's the one that's responsible for making his melodies. Right. For the and, most part. And, and coming up with the rhythms behind it. And he doesn't get enough credit for that, I think. And I think he deserves that. So, mm-hmm. so uh, what we find out later in the album is that um, Victoria rebounds to Julian's brother, Edward. And begins a secret affair with him because she fears what well, Julian. That's a good idea. What she fears what Julian would do if she found out that she left him for his brother. Dating advice with John Petrucci. Yep. <laughs> Don't try uh, this mo- at home. All different members of the band helped write that album. I can't remember who wrote which song on that album because mm-hmm. it's really a group effort. That's nice. Um. So. But the big twist is that Edward's the one that becomes, like, violently possessive of her. And she begins to get, um, either she realizes she still loves Julian, and I think Julian, like, tries to clean up his ways, and so she leaves Edward. Edward, in a jealous rage, 
kills Victoria and Julian and stages it to look like it was a murder-suicide. And it turns out that he was the witness that invented that scenario. Oh my gosh, this is like and Predestination, the movie or something, and it's where you not find re- out, like... It's not revealed, that twist is revealed to the final song of the of the album. Which is not the one that we have. No. Oh, I thought that one was the last one. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a really cool thing that they do, but we'll talk about that more okay. later. I might actually want to listen to this album, I kind of want to hear the end. Ooh. So. I want to listen to it We're not you. even two final thoughts, and I still want to listen to more. Okay. And we're like, we're halfway through the songs. Are we even done with the song? No, we still need to talk about what's going on musically. In yeah. This song. Oh my. Goodness, so that was just yeah. that was me giving all the context because you got to know the story in order to understand lyrically what's going on in this song. Wow. So. Um, oh my goodness. So yeah, we've got a, a lot of we've got that great. I want to say it's five eight one two three four five one two three four five. Uh, it's, that riff. it's probably a combination of eight mm-hmm. different types. There's signatures. a lot of weird <laughs> time signature stuff in this song. In this album. Oh, yeah, in the whole album, for sure. <laughs> but on this song, yeah. Yeah. And something that a lot of Dream Theater songs, their merit is based on, because it's one of the most iconic parts of their sound, is their instrumentals. Mm-hmm. The instrumental sections. Um, typically, a Dream Theater song lives or dies by how good its instrumental section is. Um, the verses and the choruses can be really good and the riffs, but usually the Dream Theater fans dictate how good a song is by its instrumental section. And in my opinion, this is one of their greatest instrumental sections. Mm, is it the one that... That's when it starts, and it goes all the way through until the final Our Dreams of Travel Oh yeah, that's such a good section. There's so many great moments throughout it, so many great solos. Um... So many cool changes in the groove that are actually subtle callbacks to earlier moments in the song that I actually didn't know until a couple years ago. I sat down and tried to learn the song on bass, which I failed at pretty miserably because the mm-hmm. song is deceptively tough. But I realized, it's like, oh my gosh, this is this riff, but slowed down. Oh, this is this riff, but faster in a different time signature. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, it's the one with that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good section. Because that's, that's in the she may have found a da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good section, too, because they play that riff so you can hear it, and then they modulate it and then stick a keyboard solo on top of it. Yep. And it's like it's suddenly new. <laughs> like, they didn't have to do anything crazy to this time. Yeah. You know, sometimes they do crazy things to come up with, with how they do different motifs and, and play it differently they didn't do much on that one yeah so um tell me what you thought of the solos in this song first off let's let's talk about the crazy one that comes out of the first break oh. before the slowdown oh okay that's the, okay. the, the shredding one mm, i'm trying to think because the only the only big solo i can really think of in this set are the first two songs and the one in the next song okay um I, I know it, oh, you know, I, I can't comment on it because I can't really bring it to the forefront of my mind right now. The only okay. thing, the only thing that, that really stands out to me was the different key tones that, that Jordan Rudis comes up with. Yeah, so the keyboard solos are really wacky in this right. instrumental section, like, especially melodically, and yeah, the, the sounds he's using. Yeah, the sounds he's using sounds like from an old, like, Game Boy game or something. Uh-huh. But the rest of the band... Sounds like it's Megadeth. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we have the my my favorite part of the 
instrumental section is when um, they both harmonize and do that. Oh, that's in the next song. That's in the next song. No, this isn't a song. It is? Yeah. It's, um, I mean, they do something similar. You're thinking of it. Oh. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Which, you know what? I think that that was on purpose to mimic that. Because it's Metropolis 1 and 2. Boom. Oh, you helped me Whoa. make another bridge! Wow, look at that. Live, live in front of the mic, I Lucas always, discovers another thing. I, always, I mean, we hadn't done anything like that since Elvis. I know, I always <laughs> find different, uh, I always find new things to pull out of scenes from memory. It's why it's my favorite Dream Theater record. Every it, time I great. dig into it, I'm just, I find something new that I didn't know about and it. It's, and it's also good for albums like that if there's still something good face value. Yes. Which it has. Uh-huh. It has great music. But if you dig into kind of the meaning and the, and the changes and the motifs and everything, this is interesting. Yeah, I, I really am excited to listen to this album as soon as we yeah. finish recording. And, uh-huh. Yeah, uh, we're going to sit down and listen to this album. Because it's, it's... Maybe we should just do an episode on this album. It's glorious. <laughs> well, when we, when we do more Dream Theater episodes, we're going to pull more songs from this album okay, for sure. Okay, okay. So let's talk about how this al- the song ends. Um, because it's important, I think, to establish kind of the, the end of the first half of this set. It, it ends on a nice tone. It's got mm-hmm. the it's got the acoustic guitar going on, um, with I guess kind of the. It's a major version of whenever they would do the interludes, where it do no no the main riff do no do no do no do yeah, it could be it could be almost like a negative harmony version. Something yeah. to where it's I, it's the same it's pattern the same, yeah. and the same rhythm. But I wouldn't be surprised if they threw negative harmony in there. I mean, that, that, that kind of band. I've never even heard of negative harmony. Oh yeah, I can I can give everybody a lesson, but it'd take a while. <laughs> Just look up YouTube negative harmony if you're interested. It's really cool. Um, but uh, some negative harmony does show up later in um, in the other song from this album. Yeah, just subtly. Um, so, but yeah, I wanted to have something pretty to be able to kind of transition us yeah. into our next song. Yeah, and, and, and it feels like you're back in kindergarten playing in the backyard. Mm-hmm. That's the feeling that I get from it, and I don't know if there was a reason for that, but that's the feeling I get. Well, it's because they go into a ballad at that point from in the album. Oh, really? They transition okay. into a, an intimate song with, just between him and Victoria, mm. where he's saying that he's um, maturing as a person by learning from her. Well, because they're learning, the same person. Yeah, but he's like, he's, he's learning to um, to see the world in a different way. That's weird. He's learning to love again. And so, um, but yeah, so but we, what we actually transitioned to is uh, a classic, classic Dream Theater song, Metropolis Part 1. The Miracle and the Sleeper. Yes, so this was our representation from Images and Words. Mm-hmm. Which I had to I had to have an Images and Words you, song. You just, you just got to. In my opinion, this is the best one from the album. There's a lot of good uh, technical keyboard playing, like we talked about. Like, Jordan Brutus is, is just a god on the keyboard. But this isn't him. No, this is Kevin Moore. This is the other, this is the other keyboardist who still, in his own right, has some great technical playing. But he also has some good keyboard tones, especially in that intro. Mm-hmm. That helped develop the atmosphere. Um, oh my goodness! Yeah, so it, it starts with the keyboard, basically, um, and sleigh bells with with kind of that suspended 
fourth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And almost starts sounding like Dance of Eternity. Which, Dance of uh, Eternity, I would say, is the song that most borrows from Metropolis Part 1. That one, Home, because Home borrows a lot musically and mostly lyrically. Mm-hmm. And then I would say um, the the opening song to Scenes from Memory, the, the, I guess the opening salvo, which would be Overture 1928, Strange Deja Vu, pulls a lot from Metropolis Part 1. And then the rest of it is kind of more... Uh, standalone-ish mm-hmm. as far as not pulling as much from the original but those three in particular mm-hmm. really borrow from what metropolis sets down hmm. so um this song also another long one that doesn't feel like it yeah nine minutes <laughs> long on this so this i would actually say is the quintessential dream theater song and like the one song that i would say like is the consensual of the fans like this is this is the dream theater song really well i would say besides like the the really big large epics like if you were to say like you know pull me under is like the big hit and mm-hmm. yes it's one of the most classic dream theater songs but if like um like if there was a song that you feel like has to be played at every show and you were to ask them it would be metropolis it's kind of like the song that really there contains everything that's about them musically. I think if you were to show someone one song that you wanted them to know everything about what Dream Theater is, Metropolis is the one you show them. And I think mm. it's also one of the best songs they ever wrote. Oh, it's really good. I mean, this... This is this, a top five Dream Theater song, this, in my opinion. This set, the last four songs, they just get better and better and better. So you already know which one is my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this was a good contender for my favorite because I like the sound engineering behind it. Mm-hmm. Um... I keep going back to that. I think that even though the keyboardists for Dream Theater were the secret weapon, even though we kind of know about it, the real secret heroes of the of the Dream Theater, you know, music is whoever does the sound engineering. It, the sound engineering on Images and Words is just it's great. so it's great. incredible. It, this is one of those albums where I want to write an album like this just to get that sound. Yeah. You know, I love how the drums sound on this. It's it, yes. there's almost something mechanical about it, but like, at the same time, it's like it's everything's so clear. Yeah, everything's so clear, and it makes you admire that he is hitting everything so perfectly, so precisely. Right, he's not making any mistakes. But you still everything's so clear, but you still feel like you're stuck in a giant space. Uh huh. And that's that's something very difficult to do. I mean, because as soon as you start adding those uh, effects that simulate space like delay and reverb and all that you start to muddy up everything and you can't hear the bass and then you can't hear the guitars and then you can't hear the drums and whatever and the fact that they're able to find the perfect balance where it feels like you're stuck on a mountain or i don't even know i'm i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna start ranting if i keep going <laughs> you know what you know what i'm saying yeah uh-huh you know what i'm saying so so yeah, this is this is Dream Theater. Just they're young. They've they're out to show the world what they can do. Yeah. This this song is just like an excuse for all of them to show everyone how great they are. Even Labrie, who is at the best he ever was at this point, um, he had some crazy high notes that just full of so much power. Mm-hmm. 
and the tone is so good on his voice here. Um, and then just you've got the instrumental section, which I think is the template that all Dream Theater instrumental sections kind of abide by. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Again, I think it's the most classic of all of them. But every band member gets their own moment to kind of be the center of attention. You've got the little mini drum solo. Mm-hmm. You've got the bass solo mm-hmm. that I've actually I've looked up how to do it, and he's like doing all this crazy tapping, and I'm just like tapping. Yeah, like that's how you play. Wait that. for the bass. Uh huh. There's a bass solo with tap. Oh my goodness! That part where it breaks the band. Do, do, pick it up. Oh, oh yeah! Oh, and that's in that's in uh, Dance of Eternity too. Yeah, so that's so, what yeah. that bass solo is that's in Dance of Eternity. Is it's the sequel to that moment. Um, you've got several guitar solos. Oh, yeah. you've got several keyboard solos. <laughs> and then, and you solos. have the dueling keyboard guitar solo, mm-hmm. or I should say, uh, at the same time doubled or whatever. Yeah, um, it's. <laughs> I cannot imagine writing a song. Like this. But this is the kind of song I would love to write someday. I know! I know, exactly. It's like, you you, uh, you just you can't ever attain this level of musicality, and yet this is something that, that I still strive for as a musician. Mm-hmm. Just and the fact all that musicians they, do. The fact that know? they made a song so good so early in their career. This is on the second album. Right. So... And not, like, lucky good. Not like they found a good hook. Like, mm-hmm. they magically wrote, like, Cherry Pie or, like, My Sharona or something. <laughs> like, they, like, they... So many good parts together in a song. Mm-hmm. So... So, in a, in the rock band games, which is actually how I first discovered Dream Theater. It's how you discover everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> their song Panic Attack was, like one of the last songs in the that's we'll talk about that song at some point because that's an insane song also off the octavarium album okay um that was the first time i'd ever heard them and that's like one of the last songs in the game on every instrument Mm -hmm. um but then they like they will they always release like new songs every week to download and they like were always super stingy about releasing dream theater songs which i felt like was like the perfect band to do for this game and I remember they, they were only released two more Dream Theater songs after that, which was Constant Motion <laughs> and off of the dramatic turn of events on the Backs of Angels, which is like my least favorite song off that album. But it was the single. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what you get. And then, like, Rock Band 3 was the last one. It died, you know. They pretty much, like, killed the franchise just because people weren't playing them as much. Mm-hmm. And then randomly, like, after a year of silence, Rock Band comes back and says, we're making a rock band four for the new gen. And so I started wondering, what's the set list going to be? And they just would release like five or six songs once a week, building mm-hmm. up the set. And like one of the last weeks they released it, and on it it said Metropolis Part 1. The and I was just like, oh my this Because they have a thing on their website where you can request songs. Mm-hmm. There is about a two-year period where once a week I wrote Metropolis Part 1 as the song select suggestion that's awesome. so i would like to think that that's it's on awesome. there because of my persistence awesome. and of course it's the last song in the game for every single instrument because of course it is because yeah even vocals so you basically came up with the boss level for the yeah it's it's there and <laughs> golly it's so hard to play on guitar 
playing those playing those solos. It's just like even when you put the the overdrive on, like you could fail. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it was it's such a fun song to play on that game, and it was one that I want to say that I helped make happen. That's pretty cool. So, um, what else do you want to pull from this song? Um, I really want to know why you didn't put this song before the other one. Was it because you wanted to keep the, the musical flow was more The musical the flow, flow, yes. So, I mean, it does kind of flow musically. So. Yeah, and because also this sets up our next song really, really well. Okay. Um, I can't remember how it ends. So we this end. Was, this was like one of my. We end things. with him saying the dance of eternity. Right, the dance of eternity, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and it, and it starts the next song in the same note too. Yeah. So which you know, this was this was a song I always I knew had to be on the set. This next song. Yes, the All spirit right. carries on. This is a song that is also considered now a dream theater classic. Oh, this Even, is such a good song. Golly. So I was in love with the song before I knew about Pink Floyd. And now I realize that I, I love Pink Floyd so much. Mm-hmm. And I love this song so much just because there's, that's there's really so what much Pink Floyd in this. Yes. The way... Because the guitar solo in this song used to be my all-time favorite guitar solo. Yeah, before you discovered David Gilmore. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, now I realize it's like, oh, he's playing a David Gilmore solo, but he just there's parts where he Petrucci's it. Right, where... Right, and, and it's one of those David Gilmore style where no note is there for no reason. Yeah. Right, you, you're not going to play a flurry of notes because why not? Like Michelangelo Badio or something. He used mm-hmm. to show off. Um and it kind of that's kind of a callback to as I am. Yeah. You know. Um this this song yeah. um I mean there's a reason why, you know, when they did their astonishing tour and they only could only pick 3 songs on the encore. They picked this song cuz man, the whole crowd was singing. I was there with a friend and we like put our arms around each other and we were swaying back and <laughs> forth just singing at the top of our lungs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This song has made me cry several times listening yeah. to it. Um, my, uh, my cousin and her husband are also big dream theater fans. Mm-hmm. They don't live super close by, so I don't get to talk to them about it a lot, but our, um, our grandma passed away last year and they're both like world-class musicians, but they're like classically trained. So my cousin plays the violin and her husband plays classical acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, but they played The Spirit Carries On oh. during the ceremony and I perked my ears up. I was like, thank you. Oh, man. I, I see what you did there. Wow. That's a real tearjerker. I'm uh-huh. going to have to maybe take a minute. No, I won't. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. We're going to keep talking about this song. So <laughs> let's talk about where this falls into the story. This is actually okay. the second to last song on the album. I figured it would be. I figured it would be. So um, the whole point of this song is him coming to peace. Mm-hmm. with victoria mm-hmm. and him you know it, the whole big hook of the song is if i die tomorrow i'll be all right mm-hmm. because i believe that after we're gone the spirit carries on mm-hmm. he knows now that there's nothing to fear from dying mm-hmm. that's not the end um as the hypnotherapist famously says earlier in the album remember that death is not the end only a transition mm-hmm. and um he's pretty much just talking to victoria that he's just you know He's okay with whatever happens. He feels like he has done what he set out to do. 
Um, even though really what happens in the last song is happens before what happens in Spirit Carries On, but it's saved till the end to have that big gut punch at the end of the album. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is him kind of, he now knows everything that happened. He can let Victoria move on, but at the same time, you know, Victoria speaks to him and says, um, don't weep in my grave because I'm no longer here, but please never let your memory of me disappear. Just kind mm-hmm. of, you know, let him know it's okay. You don't have to mourn for me anymore. You know, I'm at peace now. You can live the rest of your life. And now you can have peace as well. Mm-hmm. Victoria's real. I finally feel at peace with the girl in my dreams. Oh! Oh, that's what that line means! Yep. Oh my gosh! Okay, that makes a lot more sense now. And wow. there are okay, other there are other things in this song that you won't fully appreciate until you listen to the whole album. Okay. Because do you know what the first line sung in the album is? Where did we come from? Safe in the light that surrounds me, Whoa. free of the fear and pain. Whoa, wait, hold up. Whoa, wait, what? That's the first line wow. sung in the album. And so it comes oh full circle. To that moment. So when you're listening to the whole album and it gets to that point right there. Oh my gosh. Just all the emotion just spills out. Oh my gosh, the veins in my forehead are popping. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I can't I can't process this information. And so, oh my gosh. Yeah. Because that's the greatest that's the best Okay, I don't say this is the best moment of the set. That's not the best moment of the set. Because we're, we're, we're getting close to the best moment of the set. Here's the thing, and that's the crazy thing about this set, is you don't think you can get any further up on this song, but then we still have the big finale that yeah, we get we, to. Yeah. Which I mean, we're going to spend like probably 30 minutes talking just about that in yeah, itself. Yeah, but, um, but uh, and the significance around it. I really want to hear the significance around it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it comes after that great solo. That real Cemetery Gate style solo where you start slow and then you kind of build up in intensity and then and every every note is perfect. Every note's perfect. Perfect. It builds up and then they have like four suspensions right after each other, um, and then the last one's kind of halftime, mm-hmm. right at the end of the solo. And I think it's just beautiful and perfect. And then it comes in with the choir and the safe in the light that surrounds me. It's like. Oh, yes! And he does that final, if I die tomorrow. Yes! And, oh. then, and then when you have the, the, uh, the female voice in the background, that's also meant to symbolize Victoria. Because that appears throughout earlier in the album as well. As kind of a symbol of her spirit. Just, it sounds like something off of Dark Side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds... It, it does! It, but it's not... Pink Floyd. No, it's still it's Dream Theater. Dream Theater. It's definitely Dream Theater. Mm-hmm. But you can tell there's some Pink Floyd influence. But they also used this as a one of the songs that they auditioned their new drummers with because they were like because they picked three songs. One was like one of their uber long heavy metal songs. Mm-hmm. The other one was the Dance of Eternity to make sure that they can. So the first was just like let's see if you can be metal enough with us. The second is we're gonna do Dance of Eternity to make sure that you know how to play the craziest time signatures. Mm-hmm. But then we're also going to make you play Spirit Carries On to make sure that you can play simply and with groove. I mean, that's that's the three things that you need from any musician, pretty much. Yep. Any hired gun, at least. Uh, so, yeah, Spirit Carries On is, has, is a contender for being my favorite Dream Theater song, if not for 
this last one. So I think we can go ahead and move on to it. All right. Yeah, this is this is your favorite, right? And this is my favorite. And it's also what I think I can objectively say was the best song they ever made. And it's it's it is it's not densely packed as much with great spots as much as like Metropolis. I would say Metropolis is more densely packed with moments because they that they, I like. they switch to so moments so quickly. Right. This one they all this the moments they take don't. their time. But but it all but there's more, and on the on the average on the balance they're better. The the good parts of this song are better than the good parts of Metropolis. By the way, this song is Octavarium. This is Octavarium. Yeah. So I actually discovered this song a long time ago. Um, back, Which I was really sad that you had heard this one. Back when I, uh, yeah, back when I, well, I totally forgot about it because I didn't appreciate it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was back during my uh, Rush is the best band there ever was phase, which I still believe that, but I'm not as snobby about it anymore. Uh-huh. Um, I'm actually willing to listen to other bands. Um, and so I was really obsessed with 2112, and then I got really obsessed with Cygnus X1, which I still am. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's... That's one of the greatest epics. Yeah, uh, definitely. Good story, good message. Um, and so that's the longest Rush song. And so then I'm like, ooh, I wonder if there's a longer song that somebody else wrote that has a really cool epic theme to it as well. And I stumbled across Octavarium. It's obviously not as long, but I came across it and I was expecting something like Rush and I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just was like, eh, and yeah. I kind of threw it out of my memory. And so when I, I almost rediscovered it, I, I liked the beginning of it. I, that my ear kind of gravitated towards the atmospheric beginning of it. and Very the, Pink Floyd. And the opening section, when they finally open up, when he says, as far as I can tell, I really liked that section. But once mm-hmm. they go to like, you know, the full circle section, I kind of just, I didn't really care for it. I do now. Yeah. I do now. And I, I understand the significance of it. Okay, um, so let's, but let's yeah. So first ahead. we need to talk about Octavarium as an album, because that is actually another concept album, but okay. not in the way that it's a story. I'm, I'm just, I'm going to let you lecture so I can learn, because I know so, almost nothing. So, so the theme, so the, the concept of that album is music itself, and music theory. Mm-hmm. So, um, Octavarium is their eighth album. It's Oct. got... Octavarium, which I'm, I'm pretty sure they invented that word, but because I tried to look up the definition, I don't know what an octavarium yeah, I is. Did too, yeah, um, but it's their eighth album. There's eight songs on the album. They also, how you know, in music, Western music, you've got eight um, notes and five accidentals. Uh, yeah, in 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 your typical major uh-huh. modulations, yeah. So they also, by that time, had five live albums slash EPs. Okay. So they this was their going to be the eighth album after seven real albums and five accidentals, mm-hmm. which that was also like really cool that it just happened to work out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they go with I want to say it's the F major scale. I think it is. I remember reading something about it's this. the F major scale where every song. Either it's keyed to it or the first note played is part of that, you know, the eight notes of an F major scale. But in between certain songs, they'll have a tone to indicate the accidental. So in between songs one and two, you've got like, um, and then it goes to the next song. 
But then in the parts of the album where there would be a half step, the song just ends. And it just starts dry into the next song. Sweet. So they even so put that attention to it. starting at F major. It's an octave higher than the note that starts the song it, Root of All Evil. And it's right after E, so they just start fresh. Yep. So because Sacrifice Sons, nice. the songs that comes before it just ends. And then that note fades in for Octavarium, which also, this was one that I just learned about the fact that the first song is called The Root of All Evil and the first note in a scale is the root. It's root. I didn't, I never caught that. Really? Okay. <laughs> I didn't catch it until you mentioned it though. I mean. Yeah. Also, um, depending on where, what order in the song and album list the song falls in, mm-hmm. uh, typically will also determine the time signature. So the third song is in three. Although, I mean, really you could count it as six, but it's a derivative of three. But the song These Walls, one, two, three, they one, They change two, three, time three, signatures one, two, so much anyway. Well, not in that song. That song stays in, oh, the, really? in the three feel. That's weird. Um, the fifth song, Panic Attack, the... They changed time signatures a lot in that one, but the but the named but one of the main riffs is in five. Um, so you know they do stuff like that as well. And so the thing about octaves is that it's an end, but it's also a beginning. the The tone is ending, but it's also the beginning of the next series Mm -hmm. so the song of octavarium the theme throughout it is things ending where they began and so the whole song is the whole song the whole song one story different stories it's five different vignettes that all are about the same theme and all written by different members of the band well by three of them so petrucci writes parts one and five labrie wrote part two Portnoy wrote parts three and four. Okay, let's go through the individual parts because <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble to come up with five different parts. The five different lyrical sections. Right, right, okay. So, um, so you get through the whole atmospheric part mm-hmm. and you pretty much... I never... So the first part is the someone like him is what it's called. Mm-hmm. And that's written by John Petrucci. And it was just based off a real experience he had about meeting one of his childhood musical idols and finding out that he was actually kind of a jerk in real life and swearing he'll never be someone like him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe he like is saying that he turned into a jerk, but it's just more of that, that idea, the concept. It, really, the lyrics are talking about, I never want to um, take life day to day and just survive. I want to... You know, I want to explore. I want to be big and bold. Mm-hmm. But then when you get to that age, it's just what's natural is that your ambitions are not the same. Your dreams are not the same. You find that inadvertently you start to become the people that you don't ever want to be like. And it's not until after it's already happened that you turn around and go, oh my gosh. You know, I've, I've turned into the very thing I swore I would never be. Is, is there a reason that it almost sounds like Bohemian Rhapsody with the piano? Um, I don't think there's an intentional reason behind it. Because it sounds kind of kind of rhythmically the same. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that the first time I listened to it. I'm like, wait a minute. 
I've actually never picked that out before. Um, and there's some there's some other like standard motifs that come up later mm -hmm. that I'm sure we can talk about as we get there. Yeah. So the song is structured in a way to where it's always doing this, which we've talked about before. Is he's my making it. He's of, making an upward incline. I, I always for those of you who are eventually, listening. Eventually, we're going to video record these so I can <laughs> do all of these things, make all my faces and my hand movements. Right. Yeah. But the song is constantly building. Mm -hmm. There's not a point where it drops down. We're always moving upwards in intensity. Well, until the the grand grand finale. Yes. Right. Well, and may, maybe it goes down in volume. Maybe it goes nah, down. Yeah, for, I'm not saying for that particular instruments, but but, but the, the intensity and certainly emotional intensity goes up. Oh, never goes down. Yeah. Even when say the volume goes down, you definitely feel the tension is growing. So. Um, so we start off with this someone like him that's very low, and it kind of gets big right up there at the end. The, as far as I can tell, there's mm -hmm. nothing more I need. That's such a good moment. Yeah. That's the first great moment of the song. Of many great moments that we're mm -hmm. going to get to. So. And so then we transition to, um, I believe the section is called Medicate. So next we kind of, it's almost like a, this one is like a fictional short story of a man that wakes up from a 30-year coma and then finds that he's slipping back into the same coma. And so it's just, again, things ending where they began. Mm -hmm. So this, I guess, is the most like surface level, lyrically, of all the sections, but there's such a great groove that sits underneath this part, the drums and bass. Mm -hmm. And... Um, this, this section is pretty straightforward, but then we get into um, probably my favorite keyboard solo of all time. When Rudess opens up to that... The groove just kicks back up. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the solo of Rudess that I just listened to it, and I'm just like in awe of what he's playing. Because he's there's certain sections he's playing so fast, but they're so melodically satisfying. And I've seen the sheet music of that solo, and I don't even comprehend how human beings can play <laughs> what he's playing. Oh yeah, I saw a video of him playing like I, I I can't even remember what it was, but his just his right hand was like flipping over itself to like play the the, the run or whatever that he was doing. Like he'd have his thumb at a further point than his pinky, and then his other I don't even know. It was just it was so confusing. Yeah, he's inhuman. So I just tried to do that, and I just it just it. <laughs> It's just like a like a fish that's it, flopping around on land. But it's technically accurate. Yes, it's like golly. But anyway, yeah, no, there's definitely plenty of those in this song. Mm -hmm. And so from that point, we jump into where things start to get a little more dark and intense when we get to the third section, which is Full Circle, mm -hmm. which is a written by Mike Porney. It's a mashup of just all these different pop culture references. Mm -hmm. and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, Jack the Ripper. Here's the thing. Everything, everything is a reference. Even, like, stuff that's in between different phrases. I'm going to see how many I can think of, because I don't want to look at the, the little thing online. I want to mm -hmm. see how many I can pull off. Mm -hmm. um, you've got Sailing on the Seven Seas, Seize the Day, Day Tripper, mm -hmm. um, Jack the Ripper Owens. Oh, wow! 
Oh, check it out! Owens Wilson. Owen Wilson. Wilson Phillips, which is a band. Mm -hmm. Supper's Ready, which is a Genesis song. Lucy in the Sky with Diamond Dave. Diamond Dave, check it out! Dave's Not Here is a is like an old Saturday Night Live sketch. Mm -hmm. Dave's Not Here. I've, here I Come to Save the Day is the theme for the Mighty Mouse. Dave's Not Here, I've Come to Save the Day, Fortnite, the cinema, sh the cinema show, Show Me the Way to Get Back Home Again, which is Pink Floyd. What? <laughs> uh, so there's so every word so far on average has had 1.5 references. Yeah, so that's the way that they're linking it through. And the whole the whole theme of it is that um, there's no new ideas in in entertainment and art. Everything is being everything is recycled and repurposed to well, to sad. make something new. What are you talking about, man? Um, I mean, it's true. Don't though. listen to that. All all of the all of the original stories have already been told. It's just about the presentation of it. <laughs> There's there's people that there's people that say there's only six stories out there. We've just been retelling them in interesting, unique ways. That's not saying that like creativity is dead. It's just about like the way things are structured and the type of story you tell. There's like only six or seven of them, and it's just a, the where things can become really artistic and creative is how do you repurpose them, and that's exactly what they're doing with all these references. They're putting all these different things together to make something new out of it. But at the same time, it's this, it's this, um, this maddening race. Okay. And so, and then we've got the second section flying, flying off the handle with, um, Eugene, Gene, the, Eugene, Gene, the dance machine, Messiah, light my fire, Gabba, Gabba, hey, hey, my, my generation's home again. I don't even, it would take so long for me to just think about, what each one is references, but everything like is again, it's like one point five references. Yeah, yeah. In every word, it's pretty amazing how he sequenced everything together. And so, but yeah, right here is just you know the guitars are getting more intense, mm -hmm. the vocals are getting more aggressive. Yeah, it sounds like you're in like a cartoon tornado. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and then and you have uh, Portnoy's backing vocals too. Yes. Which I'm sure you were just about to talk about. Well, I was about to talk about the instrumental section that comes in after this. Mm, okay. So, a, an, an epic as grand as Octavarium has got to have a good instrumental section. Right, of course. Holy of course. crap, do they do some crazy stuff. <laughs> so when we get to that part where it's the stuttering drum beat and um, Petrucci and Rudess come in with that shredding, uh, uh, like, where they're playing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, like, what are, what do you what do you think about what what, that part? what what I think about it? I mean, it's the logical conclusion of everything that's happened in the past ten minutes, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, you talked about like this this entire song is building up mm -hmm. the whole thing, and that's true in a sense that that we kind of have that atmosphere build up, and then we're kind of introducing the vocals and now things are getting more intense and now we're at the point of intensity where we have to do the weird things that we did in metropolis or else it's not going to get more intense so that they can build up that weird kind of dissonant almost uh um tension building without chords uh which is really hard to do mm -hmm. um and so they can kind of release it 
when they get to the very end. Yeah. And and not release it in a way that they can't release it again. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, I, I, I think it, it's not, that instrumental, this song is not built around the instrumental section. Right? No. I and mean, that's, and their, that's the crazy none thing. None of their is songs this... are, I would say, but even to a lesser extent, this one, the instrumental section is just there because they needed something there to carry from the, the weird cartoon tornado section. Into something a little more menacing. Into something really, really intense. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And so then, and we get a couple of actually brief funny moments that like when it cuts to just the acoustic guitar and mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the demented carnival section that Rudess does. The mm-hmm. And we get a reprise of the, um, the keyboard solo on the guitar. Um, but then it seems like everything goes down for the fourth section, but with that, with the keyboards kind of pulsing underneath and the drum beat keeps coming forward. Yeah. The volume goes down, but the tension has increased but because it, now you feel like something is about to happen. Yeah, like something's coming at you. Uh huh. Yeah, it's kind of like kind of like Spirit Crusher. Yep. You know, it's like you got to shut the door, keep the Spirit Crusher out. You know? Yep. But it's, and this is this is what I think is actually but it's the right most, in front of you. This is actually what I think is the most interesting part of the song. Here yes, because, this is the part that I want to talk about. So, do you know what's actually happening here lyrically? No, no idea. There are eight lines, mm-hmm. and every line is a recap of the song previously in the album. So, start over. What? So <laughs> okay, the first spell line. Spell this out for me. Spell so, so the first line: "Our deadly sins feel his mortal wrath, remove all obstacles from his path." That's the root of all evil, which is all about, uh, which is part of Mike Portnoy's twelve-step suite about identifying the things in your life that are perpetuating your addiction and getting rid of it to become a better man. Okay. And so... I'm going to try to keep the veins from popping out of my head. All num- right. So <laughs> number two, asking questions, search for truths, the answer's been right in front of you, mm-hmm. which is number two, the answer lies within, which is just about how, um, you know, there's there's greatness inside of you even if you don't see it yourself and it's about you know the song is perspective of someone that sees someone that you know doesn't believe in themselves and saying you've got the ability to to face whatever comes in front of you Mm -hmm. um the third line is try to break through long to connect falling on deaf ears and failed muted breath Mm -hmm. which is these walls about someone that feels they're isolated that um you know, the whole chorus being, tear down these walls for me, stop me from going under. Mm-hmm. Just about, you know, making sure that you connect with someone. Mm-hmm. Then the fourth line, um, loyalty, trust, faith, and desire carries mm-hmm. love through each darkest fire, which is the fourth song, I Walk Beside You. Mm-hmm. Just about, you know, whatever comes in life, I will always be there with you. Um, even in your darkest hour, I will lend you a helping hand. Mm-hmm. Um, tortured insanity, smothering hell, try to escape but to no avail, which is panic attack. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, is pretty self-explanatory. It's about just having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Then six, the call of admirers that claim they adore, train on your lifeblood while begging for more, which is never enough. Portnoy wrote about fans that seem to never be satisfied or happy with their work, no matter how much he gives and gives and gives to them. Mm-hmm. Just the fans that will always find something to criticize, say, well, it's not as good as your older stuff, or... 
you know, I wrote you a letter and you didn't write me back. You must think you're better than me. Mm-hmm. And his frustration with all of that. Then innocent victims of merciless crimes or preyums of madman's impulsive designs to sacrifice sons, which was about 9-11. And then number eight is about Octavarium itself. Step after step, we try controlling our fight, but when we finally start living, it's become too late. Controlling our fate or controlling our fight? I meant to say fate, but okay. I realized I said fight. <laughs> step after step, we try controlling our fate. Just saying that, you know, we can't control what happens. Eventually, we will be trapped inside this Octavarium, which is the the big moment of that song. Yes, oh my gosh, that is such a good... Wow, okay. Yeah, this was definitely my favorite song. I, In good faith, I kind of held out, you know, determining which one was my favorite, just for the lyrical representation. And we're still not even done with the song. No, we still got one more we section. We still have a whole section. And this actually but, contains um, the highest note that James Labrie has ever sung. Octavarium? Mm-hmm. When he sings Shout Octavarium? Octavarium. It gets to that last big high note. That's higher than uh, Gary Lee. Wow. And learning to live, which is like kind of his more famous high note. Oh yeah, learning to live off of images and words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's. But oh, yeah, the whole the whole God. song builds to that trapped inside this octavarium part. And which you also have the do 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 kind of in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to process this, but during that whole build-up section, he, he he doesn't only sing. There's also some vocal stuff in the background, kind of adding to the yes, insanity and, of. And what he's what it's Mike Portnoy saying: root, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, octave. <laughs> I told you this was going to happen. Oh my god. Yeah, you did tell me this was going to happen before. And something also I learned for the first time is that if you really listen hard, very faint in the background, a small snippet of that song will play while they're saying the line that it correlates to. Which I never realized. But then I listened hard. I was just like, oh gosh darn, they're right. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And so now we move into the grand finale. Where all the themes from the beginning finally resurface. Everything that we heard in the ambient beginning section, as well as the the melody that's played by the flute before the someone like him comes in. Yeah, who plays the flute? That's such a bass player thing to do. Is it John Mayung? No, they actually got a full orchestra for the for a lot of the songs on that album. Oh, okay. it's very orchestral. And when they did uh, they did a special show live for that tour where they had the. They called it the Octavarium Orchestra, mm-hmm. and they actually did a lot of the songs uh, live with a full orchestra. That's pretty cool. And that's that song is really cool to watch them do. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Rush did the same thing, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, okay. <laughs> so, now we get to kind of the, the lyrics that just bring the whole thing together. We We move move in in circles, circles. balanced all the while on a gleaming razor's edge. A perfect sphere colliding with our fate. The story ends where it began. Which, yes, they are pulling from hemispheres there. And this this section is called The Silence is me trying to process everything, guys. With the heart united, the heart and mind united in a single perfect sphere. Oh, I I know the lyrics of that whole entire 28 minutes. Um, oh my goodness. And, um, 
Yeah, this is where everything gets big and grand, and then Petrucci gives us one great final solo to cap things off. You couldn't, I couldn't think he could make a more emotional solo than Spirit Carries On, but just when you go through oh, no. 24, <laughs> when you go through 24 minutes oh, no. of yeah. buildup, and then you have a perfect solo. The, the to, reason this solo is, I would say, definitively better than The Spirit Carries On is because The Spirit Carries On, that one was a buildup to the release of the vocals. This and is this song, this is, the, is the, release. the release. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a sad one. And, a, and it's because it's the same melody as Just Like Him. Right. Right. You've oh. got the orchestra just going crazy in the back, and and everything is just so big. What? I'm just I'm still trying to process like the third section of this song. I'm at least to there. Um, okay, but but they end up ending the song on what seems to be. I I don't know because they and had this the, is this is the had... final genius of Octavarium here because they end. With how the first song in the album starts, that piano note—that's how the first song in the album starts. So it's then the album itself is a loop, ending where it began. Oh, I thought they were gonna loop it back to the first of the of the five. Nope. Okay. They loop it back to the beginning of the album. So it didn't end where it began. It kind of ended somewhere towards it, the middle. No, it and. <laughs> Those five albums, I mean, I mean. Yeah, yeah, but that's the thing is that's his way of of finishing that is to just say, well, it just repeats on itself. It's, it's like an the infinite, wall. It's an infinite loop. The wall did the same thing. Which actually, I forgot to mention in part three. If you listen closely, right before he starts singing "Sailing on the Seven Seas," you hear someone go, "Isn't this where we began? Or isn't this where we left off?" And, ooh. I knew I knew there was something there. I just didn't think to ask. I never I knew what it was. Again, this was another new thing I learned, and I was just like, "Oh my gosh!" I love stuff like this. I love it when artists do stuff like this to 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 make their music more than just about the notes they're playing. Mm-hmm. It's so special. I feel like Octavarium is the. I mean, I mentioned earlier that that I um, didn't really care about this song when I first listened to it. You know, however many years ago when I was mm-hmm. big in my rush phase. I think they perfected the Rush epic, honestly, with this to, song. To me, this is the greatest prog epic ever that's, made. And that's not to detract from 2112 and Cygnus. No. I love those songs. Just the fact that there's so many layers to this. Right. While at the same time, on the first listen, you can still get sucked into it by just going, because the emotion carries you through it. But then when yeah. you start learning about it, and you start digging deep, you start going... Oh, these guys are geniuses. And and the thing I would say about like songs like Twenty One Twelve, I, I think I think Cygnus X One was the better evolution of Twenty One Twelve. Whereas Twenty One Twelve, at at some point, it kind of starts getting old. They kind of start cutting the silence too much. Yeah, they never did that in Octavarium. Mm-mm. They never did that. Every, and Dream Theater, Dream Theater never does that in their epics. Every single note followed by another note that makes sense nothing's out of place it all flows into one giant epic oh my goodness yeah i'm gonna have to listen to a lot more dream theater now mm-hmm. i hope that's the case for the listeners because yes. you know that's kind of it's kind of about you guys I uh-huh mean. but um grand is merely a representation of you guys <laughs> yeah and someone that knows more about music theory than me it, well, I, I could start ranting about Negative Harmony, but I'm not going to. 
Um, we didn't even talk about negative harmony in the spirit carries on, but that's okay. That's okay. Leave them wanting more. That's okay. We'll leave them wanting more. We'll, okay, so after maybe. that exhausting analysis of Octavarium, we're going to take another break. Yeah. And when we come back, we're going to talk about our bonus song, which is Mammoth just in of itself. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. Uh, we just finished talking about Dream Theater and talking about the six songs that we picked for this episode. Just to recap, those six songs were As I Am, Constant Motion, Beyond This Life, Metropolis Part One, The Miracle and the Sleeper, uh, The Spirit Carries On. I almost forgot there for a second. <laughs> Had a brain fart. Uh, yeah. And Octavarium. And Octavarium. And so now it's time for the bonus song. So, Grant... For those that are listening for the first time, what's a bonus song? So a bonus song is a extra song that it is kind of what it is. It's a bonus um, from a related artist that, for whatever reason, we might not do an episode on them, but we still want to talk about their music. And they're usually related in some way. Maybe it's a side project in this case, or it's of the same genre or style or whatever. And today's bonus song for Dream Theater is a liquid tension experiment song called When the Water Breaks. When the Water Breaks. I can breaks. tell you forgot what it was called. Yeah, I always... <laughs> yeah. So, the liquid tension experiment, um, which, actually, I do have some big news concerning that. Ooh, okay. Um, so, this was a side project with the Dream Theater guys that they made all instrumental music. So, it's... Not all the instrumentalists of Dream Theater. No. It's the... It's so, the Jordan Rudis... John Petrucci and Portnoy, right? Yes, and then Tony Levin, who is... I don't know if you remember that name. Um, he's he's the bassist of an artist we've already done on this um, show. I'm sure... Peter Gabriel. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's crazy. Yeah, so... That's pretty technical for Peter Gabriel's bassist. Well, he was originally King Crimson's bassist. That would explain it, yeah. So, um, and we haven't really listened... I mean... I mean, you listen to the bass line on Big Time. That's like, you know. Mm -hmm. I, uh, Tony Levin is just a freak of nature. He's so good. <laughs> so, uh, when they made the first Liquid Tension album, mm -hmm. Jordan was not in the band. Okay. So the, it was almost kind of like that was his audition process. Although they didn't realize they were auditioning him. They just uh -huh. realized that they had, they had this musical soulmate. And they were wanting to get rid of Sharinian anyway. And so yeah, they were yeah. just like, oh my gosh, this is it. Now Portnoy is, is still in Liquid Tension Experiment. Or is that kind of one of those? No, so they, like... they only did, they only made two albums. Okay. It's the main reason why I'm only putting them in the bonus because there's just not that much. Okay. Um, and those two albums were 97 and 99. So, okay. and it was called Liquid Tension Experiment and Liquid Tension Experiment 2. <laughs> uh, this song is off of the second album. So, uh, but originally John Petrucci was not going to be in the band because oh. Portnoy wanted to have something that was completely removed from um, Dream Theater. Mm -hmm. His original choice was to get Dimebag. 
Oh. I don't even know what that, that combo would have been, been that like. That would have been so amazing. Like, oh I my can't, goodness. I cannot imagine but Dimebag it, and Jordan Rudess it, playing around with each it's other. Kinda, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Van Halen where you can't get rid of Alex or Eddie without it completely just falling apart. They can't really play with other musicians. They can't. Well, I mean, now Portnoy plays with literally everybody. Right, but, well, I was saying for Dimebag. Right. Yeah, I can't imagine Dimebag. I Dimebag mean, not having Vinnie Paul? Yeah. But Vinnie Paul without Dimebag happened somehow. Uh-huh. So, whatever. But I can't... I that can't. amazing. That's, it's really cool to imagine what if, but I can't imagine what that would have even sounded like. Yeah, it's like uh, Daryl Hall almost uh, was the singer for Van Halen. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they were going through singers after David Lee Roth, before mm-hmm. Sammy Hagar, uh, they talked about or, Daryl or Hall. Or Carrie King being in Megadeth. Oh, oh, that would have been something. Also, Dimebag and Vinnie Paul being in Megadeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh you know, goodness. those are just, those are the things that you're just like, huh. Everything's connected, yeah. Les Claypool being in Metallica. I don't know who Les Claypool is. What? No. Oh. Is that bad? Yeah, that's really bad. Who is that? Um, he's the bassist for Primus. Oh, Okay. Yeah, okay. He he auditioned when Jason Newstead left, and they told him that he was too good to be in Metallica. <laughs> Man, how does it feel to be Robert Trujillo? Oh, I'm just saying. Well, I mean, no one is Les Claypool. No one is Jason Newstead. No, I'm going to say this again. No one is Les Claypool. Have you ever heard him play? I've heard some Primus songs, but they never grabbed me, other than the bass, of course, but... Yeah. We'll we'll talk about Primus okay. sometime. Um anyway, let's get back to liquid tension. Yeah. So so real quick, the big news is that um Liquid Tension three is gonna happen. Ooh, wow, after what? Twenty years. Twenty years. Good lord. And the last time they played was like in two thousand eight. Because then Portnoy left the band. Right. So that means that he's on good terms now with at least Petrucci and Rudess. Right. And so it's almost like we're going to get a little Dream Theater reunion, Yay. which I am so happy about. Mm-hmm. And of course, have I don't know if Tony Levin will come back because he's getting pretty old now. He's he's a lot older than the other guys. But I, I thought you mentioned they had rotating bassists. Nope, it's always been Tony Levin. Okay. Um, hmm. But yeah, so Jordan confirmed it literally like three weeks ago. Mm. So, and we don't know if it means, I think he said that it's an album, but I don't know if they're going to tour, or, but just the thought of hearing those three back together again. Yeah. Oh, man. And it makes, it helps to uh, let us think about, like, whether or not Mike Portnoy would do, like, a one-off show, or, like, come on stage for just one song to perform with the guys again. Mm-hmm. Not to discount from Mangini. No, Mangini has more than earned his place. Right. But, I mean, Portnoy, there's just something magical about that combo because they played together for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, let's let's talk about the song. Yeah, okay. It's like 14 it's minutes. So 16. It's one of the longer ones of this set, which mm-hmm. is really not part of the set. but um, Yeah, so this is my favorite Liquid Tension song. Okay. 
and just because of how long and insane and crazy it is. Mm. They've got some really good material. I'm sure we'll find other excuses to put some more liquid tension on uh, some other updates. Or up, not updates, episodes. Um, I don't know how exactly I would. They don't qu- I can't quite justify doing a whole episode on them. But I wanted to at least give them this. And it's fitting because it contains the numbers. So... Really what this song is structured as is let's introduce a riff, let's put some solos in, then let's introduce another riff, put some solos in, introduce another riff, put some solos in. Occasionally at the very end, let's reprise some sections we already did. Mm-hmm. But at the, it sounds redundant, but mm-hmm. man, they just they play their asses off on yeah. every section. Yeah. And they just continually just do all of these great solos and melodies and mm-hmm. that cool that insane drum break mm-hmm. where they're he's he's playing in some time signatures well i mean the time signature is set for the rest of the guys but the where he's messing around with where the one is and mm-hmm. it's it's really one of the most impressive things i've ever heard from portnoy because normally they don't get to kind of stretch out that much in dream theater right because you got lyrics to worry about uh-huh so, and then I love it whenever it slows down to the the halftime. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, there's so many guitar solos, so many keyboard solos. Mm-hmm. And it's a really fun song to, like, play along to and just kind of try and track and see if you know when all the hits are coming in. And it's, uh, it's just a great kind of mind-melting solo song. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, when when everything you do is instrumental, that tends to be a lot of the structures of the songs you're doing. It's, let's let's just pretty much jam. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, and it's, it's an extended jam session, mm-hmm. is what this is. Except that, you know, the riffs that they're jamming on, they plan beforehand because they're fairly complex. Right. So, what did you get from this song? I don't know. To me, it kind of seemed like there was something missing. From it, maybe it's maybe it's the fact that like John Myung is that secret sauce, or maybe it's just the fact that there was no vocals to back up the the, the, the melodic themes that the instruments were playing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say I didn't like it, but I will say I, that ha- I have a thing. I I don't know. It's just me and my ears. Like we have a thing against instrumentals that don't try to. Sound good. Mm-hmm. Instead, try to play good. Hmm. I mean, I think it sounds good. I mean, it, yeah. This song, I will say, took me a long time to grow on me, but it's risen to become my favorite song of theirs. There's other songs they have that are probably a little more accessible. I just wanted to put something epic after Octavarium. Right, right. Well, I mean, like an example of like sound good versus play good. Like, uh, like Strange Auto has both, but you still have those interlude sections that are just. Designed to make you feel like a space. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. paint a a picture. The song rarely lets up. Yeah, exactly. So, um, it's not to say that, like, it's a bad song. It's just, like, me and my personal taste. Just one one for me. But that's okay. I'll I'll introduce you to some other liquid tension. That's okay, because, you know, the listeners can listen to that song. Yeah. Speaking of which, go see the... Spotify playlist, because it makes no sense for you guys to listen to us for, like, two hours or 
more something two and now. a half hours. Yeah, two and a half hours probably at this point. Um, about songs that you're not even going to listen to. So yeah. definitely check that out. All right, let's go ahead and move into final thoughts. Okay. So I know this is going to be <laughs> this, big for you. Oh, this is big. I think that this, big for me. I think this might be now officially the, uh, the, the new artist that you're now the most excited about. We'll see. We'll see, if see. It, see if it dethrones Peter Gabriel we'll for see. you. Oh. oh, yeah, Peter Gabriel was never on the throne. I mean, Ghost was it was the artist pretty quickly. Oh, okay. I thought you said, uh, I thought you had told me before it was Peter Gabriel. Oh, no. Was, Peter... As far as artists you hadn't listened to before that you're now like, oh, I, I really oh, like Oh, that side of the 80s, yeah. Well, it, opening up a different genre. Okay. Um, same thing with Soundgarden. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, obviously before this episode I didn't know very much about Dream Theater. I mean a lot of these songs were new to me. Um Octavarium I heard like once. Um and then Constant Motion you had already showed me previously. But other than that, these songs I had no idea they even existed. Um but I liked all of them. Um which is rare for a podcast episode for me to like every single one of the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think Dream Theater will become one of my favorite artists and our uh, us talking about like the lyrical themes of octavarium and uh scenes from a memory is is great i like when there's different elements and layers added to music and it's not just about the notes that are being played and, mm-hmm. and there's like a real craft to it and i really admire that and i don't know i'm just really excited to listen to some of this stuff like as soon as soon as you leave i'll probably start listening to scenes from memory so, so needless to say, my appreciation for them has grown immensely from essentially they're good musicians to I like their music, or I can say I want to learn as much as I can about their music. Mm-hmm. Um, I know where to start, you know, as opposed to Eagles. It's like I, I can, didn't really know where to start. Um, but I know exactly what album I'm going to listen to next. I'm excited about their music. I'm excited about them as artists. I don't know. I think this was the perfect episode. I think this was the perfect podcast episode. Yes! I, I really think we did it, guys! I really think it was. Because it, I came from a place of indifference. I gave it a shot. And I'm I'm a fan. Yeah. I would go see a Dream Theater show. All right. Well, we're, we're going to track and see where they go next <laughs> once they actually get to See if they come to places. Tulsa, yeah. <laughs> you guys listening? Yeah. Better get to Tulsa. You yeah. got a new fan here. <laughs> Um, Dream Theater has always been a personal favorite of mine. They're really close to being in the, that four pillars. Um, I was was wondering how long it was going to take for you to mention that. Yeah, (laughs) they're, they're in that fifth spot fairly regularly. Um, I mean, they were, they were a part of that formative journey of mine where I was really getting into metal and prog music in general. Like it was Rush and then it was Dream Theater for me. Um, and there was just, there was a time in my high school days where Dream Theater was the only band that mattered. (laughs) And, um, you know, all of my family, like, makes fun of me for listening to it because, because they're just like, oh, the songs are so long and their vocalist sucks. (laughs) And and I'm just like, you you just don't understand. (laughs) You don't understand greatness when you mm-hmm. hear it. So, um, preparing for this episode was really fun. I mean, 
there was scant that I didn't already know, but it was really fun to just kind of like, because I hadn't, I would say I hadn't really listened to them for about a year, uh, right. just listening to other stuff, and so kind of stepping in and just listening to only Dream Theater, there are a lot of songs that I like more now, just from listening to them, and um, you know, I'm always going to be excited for what they do next. So this was an episode that I've been wanting to do for a while, and I was just waiting for the right time to do it. And I was just mm -hmm. like, okay, the time is right now. Yeah. So. I was wondering how long it was going to take to do this artist. Because, I mean, you, you talk about Dream Theater all the time. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just wanted to have the right week, and I felt like this was it. And we are absolutely going to be returning to them in the oh, future because yeah. there is so much good music oh, to talk about. We haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah, like um, I've made a playlist on Spotify of ranking all of their songs from worst to right. best. Right, I remember that. And like you're, you'll be in the the seventies and eighties, and you're still getting like top notch songs. Mm -hmm. That's how deep their catalog is. Wow. As far as great songs. So, how many songs do they have? Uh, 150. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. A, a big That's reason. That's a lot of music. A big reason for that is the astonishing. The astonishing has like 36 tracks just of itself. <laughs> okay. It's cuz yeah, it's a I lot of it. short songs. Um But yeah, that's our episode. Thank you guys for listening to this really long episode. Yeah. Anytime we're going to talk about prog music. Because yeah, this it's, happened with Pink Floyd. Yeah. Anytime it's, it's, this, it's, anytime it's these experimental bands, um, I, know, I know it's always going to be a long. Because there's, the songs are so layered and so deep that you can right. talk a lot about them. Right. And obviously the ones that I love the most, I'm also going to talk about the most. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys for listening. Those of you that made it all the way to the end. Um, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. Um, leave us a review. Leave us a rating. And uh, let us know what artists you want us to talk about. And um, go visit our YouTube channel. We have As I Am on there as our cover song. And uh, hit the subscribe button on there as well. Like the video. It helps us to get put on people's news uh, well, not their news feeds, but their watch feeds. <laughs> right. To um, get us to in front of as many people as we can. And check us out on social media, on Instagram and on Facebook. And we have tons of stuff going on over there all the time. So uh, get in on the conversation over there. And um, go check us out on Patreon. We don't have stuff on there yet, but we will. So if you want to go ahead and just get a leg up on on supporting us it really helps us to be able to continue to grow we are in a big growing period right now mm -hmm. so um go support us there premium content is coming very 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 soon mm -hmm. so um even though there's not any on there right now don't worry there will be yeah did i forget to plug anything um go listen to the songs yeah go listen to the songs uh, I and think, uh, I think that's it. Next week, we're going to be doing another volume two, our second volume two. We are. And we are. Uh, we're going to be returning to one of our most popular episodes we've ever done. Oh, yeah. So. That um, narrows it down. Yep. <laughs> and I'm really excited to do it. We're going to be getting pretty experimental on this episode mm -hmm. as far as the songs we're talking about. So make sure you stay tuned in for that. 
And I believe that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music. We'll see you next time.